Wendell's World in Sports. Let's be great. Let's be great. An entertaining and provocative look into the world of sports and beyond. Play our game. All right? Play hard, but stay poised. Please feel free to go over to Apple iTunes and rate and review. Your feedback is welcome. Go rock this thing, huh? Love you, man. Go get it. And now, the host of the program from the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, Wendell Wallace. State of Minnesota, County of Hennepin, District Court, 4th Judicial District, State of Minnesota Plaintiff versus Derek Michael Chauvin, Defendant. Verdict, Count 1. Court file number 27, CR 20-12646. We, the jury, in the above entitled matter as to count one, unintentional second-degree murder while committing a felony, find the defendant guilty. This verdict agreed to this 20th day of April, 2021, at 1.44 p.m. Signed, juror four-person, juror number 19. Same caption, verdict count two. We, the jury, in the above entitled matter as to count two, Third-degree murder, perpetrating an eminently dangerous act, find the defendant guilty. This verdict agreed to this 20th day of April, 2021, at 1.45 p.m. Signed by jury four-person, juror number 19. Same caption, verdict count three. We, the jury, in the above entitled matter as to count three. Second-degree manslaughter, culpable negligence, creating an unreasonable risk, find the defendant guilty. This verdict agreed to this 20th day of April, 2021, at 1.45 p.m. Three, four person zero one nine. Accountability and a little bit of justice. Black and I'm proud. 
Black and I'm proud. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to discuss today. A lot of things to discuss today in the world of sports. Que pasa, mi amigos, mi amo, Wendell Wallace. Wendell's World in Sports. So glad that you could be with us. Bonjour, bonsoir, monsieur. Mademoiselle, je m'appelle Wendell Wallace. Wendell's World in Sports. So glad that you could be with us. Konnichiwa. Shalom. Wassalamu alaikum, my brothers and sisters. Namaste. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. We will take this verdict. We will take this and rejoice. We will take this and exhale. We will take this and wipe the sweat off our brow. We will take, for many people, the surprise. We will take the situation that happened concerning the verdict, concerning that police officer, better known as a domestic terrorist. We will take what happened in Minnesota, and we will run with it, and we will rejoice and we will give thanks, and we will have, we will be hopeful, hopeful, with the mindset of knowing that the next test is right around the corner in terms of what is this country going to do. In terms of the decision that was made in Minnesota today or a couple of days ago, where are we going? Because the next test is coming soon. Because we know that's going to be another person of color who's going to get shot. We know that there's going to be another person of color that's going to be accosted by the uh, police. We know that it's right around the corner that there's going to be another situation where an officer who is a domestic terrorist is going to violate the civil rights of black and brown people and murder one of them. Murder two of them. Murder a lot of them. So what are we doing here? What is going to be happening here? What's going to be the next test? Are we strong enough? to survive the next test? Or have we learned enough to survive the next test? What is it going to be? Did we get lucky? Is this a fluke? Because it's in a blue state? In a situation where you had a jury, a mixture of folks in terms of race is concerned? Was this a fluke? Was this an outlier? What happened if this happened in Alabama? What happened if this happens in Louisiana? What happens if this happens in Texas? It's deep in the heart of what happens if this happens in Utah or the Dakotas or Oregon or any of those places? What's going to happen? Where are we going? What's going to be the verdict? Is this going to be a situation where justice prevailing will be the norm or is this something that's going to be few and far between? Is the oppression going to continue? Is the discrimination going to continue? The unfortunate thing is we're not going to have to uh, wait. A lot. We're not going to have to wait. Uh, a long time for that to happen. So for those who don't know, a couple of days ago, first of all, for those who don't know, where in the hell have you been living? But former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin was found guilty of killing, murdering George Floyd when he knelt on his neck for nine minutes and 29 seconds. For many people, I can say for a certain generation, guess what? George Floyd is going to be your Emmett Till. George Floyd is going to be your Rodney King. For me, my generation, I guess we would say it's Rodney King. So for this generation, for the young folks out there, remember the name George Floyd because he's going down in the history books. Hopefully he'll go down in the history books 30, 40, 50 years from now. When we're speaking about the tide turning, when we speak about there's a change coming, when we speak about a positive step toward equality and unity and harmony and love amongst everybody, maybe... The situation of April 19th, 2021 will be the start, will be the beginning of something. Hopefully, praying, maybe so, maybe so. But a jury on Tuesday convicted Chauvin of second-degree murder and lesser, lesser charges for 
cutting off Floyd's air supply last May 25th as he laid handcuffed and was begging for mercy. The conviction could mean that could mean decades in prison for the 45-year-old Chauvin, who will face sentencing in eight weeks. There's a possibility that he could get somewhere around 70 years. Here's what I want to happen. I want the judge to sentence him for about, uh, I don't know, maybe 45 to 50. I want him to serve 35 to 40 years in general population or in deep, deep isolation. And then, when he's an old man, and then when he's feeble and frail, his mind is gone, his spirit is gone, he's a shell of himself for all the decades that he spent in prison for the crime that he committed. I want somebody, I don't care if it's an officer, I don't care if it's a warden, I don't care if it's an inmate. I want someone, before they put that motherfucker in a coffin, I want someone to place a knee on his neck for 9 minutes and 29 seconds. And that ain't revenge, you Bible-thumping clowns. That ain't revenge. That's true justice. Let that man suffer in prison. Let that man suffer for decades in prison. And then when he's old and he's feeble and he spent decades of nothing but misery, I want someone to put a knee on that man's neck and I want to hear him beg. I want to hear him beg for his life as his life expires. Put it on for not, not not putting it on. Don't put the knee on his bed, on that man's neck. Don't put it on there for five minutes. Don't put it on there for seven minutes. Don't put it on there for eight minutes. Don't put it on there for nine minutes and 28 seconds. You put that knee on that motherfucker's neck for nine minutes and 29 seconds. And if he dies after six minutes, I don't give a damn. Keep that knee on his neck for another three minutes and 29 seconds. That is justice. That's what should happen to Derek Chauvin. Exactly that's what should happen. You can talk about revenge. You can talk about we don't do that. You can talk about we live we don't live in that society. You can talk about second chances. You can talk about finding the Lord. You can talk about finding Allah. You can talk about all that bullshit. You can talk about all that nonsense all you want to. Conversions, convictions, all that stuff. My justice for the family, my justice should be, that's my justice. Put that man out. Put that man out for what that clown did, for what that horrible human being did. So that's my deal. So it was a good first step. But again, the conviction of Chauvin, good first step. Good first step towards justice. Did we really get justice? We got accountability. But did we really get justice? Should folks of color kind of ease a sigh of relief? Are things going to change? Are things going to get better? Has the relationship been paired between repaired between the police and those of color in different communities across this country? No. But this is a good first step. There's many more steps to be taken. We've got miles upon miles. Let me tell you something, man. Right now I'm in Las Vegas, Nevada, right? And we're speaking about true, true harmony, unity, a utopian society in terms of the relationship between everybody and police officers, where we can look at them more like peace officers, P-E-A-C-E officers, more than domestic terrorists, which I really, really want to get to. Right now, we're at, we don't trust the police. 
folks of color don't trust the police for the most part. We're not a monolith. For the most part, black folks don't trust the police. For the most part, part poor folks don't trust the police. And that's in Nevada. That's in Las Vegas, Nevada. And when I talk about the many steps that need to be taken, the miles that we need to walk to get to a place where we can truly have unity and harmony and understanding amongst people of all communities, regardless of race, financial background, political affiliation, religious background, gender, whatever. When we get to that place where it's unity, harmony, and peace officers, not domestic terrorists, let's just say the miles that we need to take would be the equivalent of me getting out of my townhome in northwest Las Vegas, Nevada, and walking to, say, Plano, Texas. Which means to say that if I'm going to start walking from Las Vegas, Nevada, and get to Plano, Texas, and I'm walking at a pretty decent clip, I ain't going to get there in 24 hours. I ain't going to get there in 48 hours. I ain't going to get there in maybe a week. It's going to take some time. And during that time from me walking from my town home in Las Vegas, Nevada to Plano, Texas, my feet are going to get sore. My knees are going to ache. My hips are going to ache. My shoulders are going to ache. There's going to be situations where it's going to get hot. There's going to be some situations where there's going to be obstacles in my road to get from my town home in Las Vegas, Nevada over to Plano, Texas. But you know what? Despite all those things, I know that if I get to Plano, Texas, I know there's something waiting for me that's going to be euphoric. I know that there's going to be something waiting for me that's going to change not just my life, but everyone's life, your life, my life, your children's life, your mother's life, your wife's life, your husband's life, your niece's life, your friend's life, your boyfriend's life, and for generations to come. If I knew that was going to be the situation, with me starting off walking from the place that I am right now in Las Vegas, Nevada, and going over to Plano, Texas, I would take the sore feet. I would take the bad ankles. I would take the bad knees. I would take the pain in my hip. I would take the pain in my shoulders. I would take the hot and humid days. I would take the dry heat of 115 degrees. I would take the sun beaming down on me. I would take the rain falling down on my face. I would take all those things. If it meant by the time I got to Plano, Texas, not the time I got to Arizona, that's the PE, so I ain't going to rip that off. But by the time I got to Plano, Texas, if I knew this was going to happen in terms of unity, harmony, togetherness, love, peace, understanding, justice, accountability for all, I would make that walk. I would make that journey knowing what's ahead of me. And that's the same thing, man, with this justice right here. That's the same thing we're on that right now. Right now, we are in a situation where we've got miles to go in terms of what needs to take place, what needs to happen, what I'm hoping for, what I'm praying for, the communication, the brotherhood, the sisterhood, the togetherness, the unity, the harmony of everybody, of everybody, including black folks and black folks, white folks and white folks, Asian folks and Asian folks, rednecks and white folks, everybody, everybody. Thugs and rednecks, man, get together and be as one, man. We, we can do this. We can do this. Democrats and Republicans, get together. We can be as one. We can do this. We can do this. Jews and Mormons and, 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 and Christians, get together. We can do this. We can do this. Muslims and, 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 and Christians and Mormons and everybody, we can do this. But to get to that place... It's going to take a lot, a lot of sacrifice. Just like me walking from my place in Las Vegas, Nevada, 
over to Plano, Texas. You know, there's a wonderful female whose name is uh, Shawnee over in Plano, Texas. I would definitely make the trip over there. I would definitely make the walk over there, especially if she started singing. I would definitely make that walk over there. But the point is, is that um, that's what uh, I feel this decision, this verdict was all about a couple of days ago in regarding this. It's it's a good first step. And I'm not going to say, well, well, you know, fuck it. No, it was a good first step. It was interesting, though. And this is maybe a lesson for those who are cloaked and privileged who are cloaked in the, um, who are cloaked in privilege and you can't see, you can't understand, you don't want to understand, you think you know it all. Just take a look after the decision was read, after the verdict was read. Go back in your mind, go back on YouTube and just look at the reaction from black people over the verdict. And really it shows not just jubilation, it doesn't show, you know, all of the wonderful things that come with a celebration, coming with the news of that, coming with the accountability and maybe a little bit of justice. You know what it shows? From folks, from black folks out there, from brown folks out there, even white folks who know about our situation, or maybe folks who haven't been part of that situation who aren't black or brown. You know what it shows? The reaction when the Verdict was read, and he was guilty. Chauvin, the domestic terrorist, was uh, found guilty in all charges. You know what it showed? It showed how, as a black community, as a brown community, as a poor community, as a community as a whole, how broken, beaten, defeated, and discriminate we have been against. That, 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 those, those things. The beaten, defeated, discriminated against, broken. That's what our community has been when it comes to uh, police justice, when it comes to criminal justice. That's what it's been. That's how we've been treated at the hands of society in the criminal justice system in particular. Celebrations across the black communities were going on like, it's almost like when when, when a sports team wins a championship, how how the city erupts in joy, that's what it felt like when Chauvin was found guilty on all of those charges. It was almost like, again, like like an, like an NBA team or like a college team winning a championship. And the city of that team that won that championship is overwhelmed with you know, euphoric pride and joy and happiness and enthusiasm and all those things. That's what it was like for us. That case... That simple open and shut case, evidence, video, everything, witnesses, everything, something that easy, something that simple, something that layup-ish, something that right here for you, right there for you. There's no way you could find that man not guilty. There's no way you could find that man anything less than the charges that were brought down, what he was convicted for. You couldn't get anything else that was as easy as that. This wasn't a situation where we didn't have video. This wasn't a situation where it was he said, she said. This wasn't a situation where you had uh, officers, you know, pulling ranks and telling lies. This wasn't a situation where you were out in the boondocks and you had an all-white jury who was pro-police deciding on the fate of this officer. We didn't have any of that. It was basically like, look, I mean, this is the man, it was like, you know, who robbed the candy store? Oh, I don't know. That guy on the on the uh, film who's robbing the candy store. 
Is he innocent or is he guilty? Did he commit the crime of robbery or not? Oh, look, here's his face right in front of us robbing the candy store. Is he innocent or is he guilty? How in the fuck are you going to find him innocent? Here's a man murdering somebody right there on camera. Nine minutes and 29 seconds. Start to finish. How in the hell are you going to find him anything less than the charges that were brought down? We know. Black folks know. The history of this country. We know. That if there's bullshit to be had, it's going to be coming down on us. And there's been instances and instances and instances concerning that situation. So when it was read that the charges, all guilty, we were like, what? What? We were, we were set. We were ready. Mentally, we were there to be disappointed. So again, take a look at that. The celebration. Take a look at the reaction that black folks had. That the black community had. I mean, could you imagine, for instance, if a team from the SWAC in, the, um, in March Madness, could you imagine if Prairie View State would have uh, won the NCAA tournament? They would have made it to the Final Four, would have beaten Butler and Gonzaga to win the NCAA tournament. That city would have been just going nuts. That campus would have just been dancing on the street, dancing in the street like Martha and the Vandellas. Could you imagine a situation where in college football, if a team like New Mexico State made it to the um, college football semifinals and beat Clemson and then beat Alabama to win the college football playoffs? My goodness gracious, they'd be going flipping nuts. It'd almost be like Coastal Carolina winning the NCAA football championship. That city, that town, those people would be going nuts. It would be a hell, hell of a story. It would be un unbelievable. Like the Detroit Lions beating the Kansas City defending champions in the Super Bowl. Who would have known? The biggest upset of all time. Shaking the head. That was the way black folks were reacting to this verdict. That's what I took away from it. It was like, damn. Something that easy? Something that should have been that, like, you know, no doubt about it. With good reason, we were still shocked. Yeah, man, that gives us another example of, yeah, we've got a long way to go. And i tell you one thing, another example of why we got a long way to go. Despite everything that was put down, despite all of the evidence, despite the, without doubt, without any doubt or question, that this man murdered this guy that this guy committed a heinous act on this guy. You still have race baiters. You still have low-life pieces of shit on television, on news channels, propagandizing that, well, you know, politics played into this, and somehow, some way, the far left uh, got into the minds of the jurors, and they were forced to uh, make a decision that they really didn't believe and vote him guilty. And because we live in the dumbest because we're people who live in the dumbest country walking this planet, we're still going to have millions upon millions of people who agree with those race-baiting assholes like Laura Ingram, like Tucker Carlson, all of those fucking jackasses who I want a deadly much punch in the face. There's going to be millions upon millions of people. There's going to be Alex Jones followers. There's going to be all of those jackasses who are going to sit there and say, Chauvin get a raw deal. That once again, it was BLM. Once again, it was black folks. Once again, it was the far left. Once again, it was Joe Biden. Once again, it was the woke crowd that somehow tainted this jury, which then rendered the wrong decision, which is why I say again, 
Accountability, yes. Justice, got a long way to go. Got a long way to go. Taking that walk from Las Vegas to Plano, Texas, got a long way to go. Those obstacles, those race-baiting, ignorant motherfuckers, long way to go, a lot of obstacles. Trying to convince people the right thing, long, that's hard, man. That's going to be a hard road. 52 years old, if I lived another 30 years, I ain't going to get there. I ain't going to get there. I'm not going to get to the society that I want to get to. Neither are you, and neither are you, and neither are you who are all my age or around my age. But come on, man, we got to make that walk. We got to make that journey. We got to make that voyage. Because it ain't going to be for us. It's got to be for your children, and then their children, and then their children. We got to keep the thing moving. We got to keep it going. So in 30 years... When a verdict like this comes down, we don't even blink an eye. When a situation comes where an officer is going to be a domestic terrorist and murder an innocent black person, justice will be served. And then the generation, which is going to be coming up three generations from ours, is going to sit there and be like, yeah, could you imagine there was a time like back in the like, like, 20, like between, I don't know, like the 21st century and such, where a guy like this could have gotten away. You know how we speak about right now, like, you know, the fact that if a white man goes out and lynches somebody, for the most part, if he says, we're looking for niggers, I want to find a nigger and I want to lynch him. Ooh, here's one. Let me go ahead and find him and let's videotape me lynching him right now. And let me be on videotape talking about, I am looking for a nigger to lynch because I hate black people. Oh, here's one. So let me go ahead and do this. You can't get away with that in the year 2021. Thank goodness. Now, if you were living in Mississippi, if you were living in Alabama, if you were living in Louisiana, if you were living in certain parts of Florida, if you were living in South Carolina, you could have gotten away with it. If you were living in Texas about 50 years ago, you could have gotten away with that. Maybe you could have gotten away with it. You could have got there, could have got your homeboys and your homegirls from the community to be the judge and be on the juror and talk about, hey, you know what? Well, this, this nigger looked at me crazy or he was doing this and he was doing that. And you would have 12 people on that jury, all white, take a look and say, yeah, pretty much that's about it. Because we know that black folks are inferior to white folks. So yeah, the lynching, Emmett Till and others, yeah, justified. So half an hour, moving on, let's get something to eat. 50 years later, that wouldn't happen. Hopefully. 50 years later, for the most part, that is looked upon as just egregious, outrageous, ridiculous. Wouldn't happen. The scenario which I just claim. I'm with the KKK. I hate black... Dylan Roof was never going to be found not guilty. You can't walk into a church, execute parishioners who are all black, and then have a juror say, "Eh, well, you know what? I mean, you only kill black people. Moving on, even in South Carolina. It wasn't, I mean, even, even super duper racist. No, you can't get away with that anymore. They might be longing for the good old days when they could, but even super duper KKK, white Aryan, white nationalists, deep in the heart of, you know, 100% bleeding racism blood type of people. No, you can't get away with that anymore. We can't go out in the middle of the street and videotape us murdering, lynching, killing black people anymore. We can't get away with that. 50 years ago, in certain parts, you could. So what I'm hoping that in the years 2071, when this is being reviewed in the school classes, when this is being talked about, 
during the civil rights movement and during Black History Month and whatever such in the year 2021, uh, 2071, and whether we're talking about in the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, whether we're speaking about the Las uh, Vegas area, whether we're speaking about the Seattle area, where we're speaking about in Lawrence, Kansas, where we're speaking about in, in uh, Indianapolis, Indiana, whether we're speaking about in you know, Jackson, Mississippi, that when it comes to this discussion in the year 2071 in the U.S. history classes for the juniors to take in high school, that when they go over this, kids are going to look at each other and say, wow, you mean you're trying to tell me that white folks can get away with that against black folks back in those days? That a police officer could actually do that and actually get away with it? And this was the beginning of the change to where I don't even fathom it. You know, kids nowadays in the classrooms, when you speak about the unspeakable actions of lynching and murdering of black folks and stuff, they really don't get as emotional or into it as, you know, the older folks do because they grew up where that's just unheard of. I mean, for the most, most, most part, I mean, you know, the younger, younger, younger generations today, the high school kids as such, they look at each other and say, what, what, what? So a guy was whistling to a white woman and a bunch of adults came in, broke into their home, beat him up, killed him, and then threw his body in the river? Huh? Just because he was black? Huh? What? 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 That's because luckily we've progressed as a community. We've progressed as a society where it's kind of like, never heard of that one. Can't see that happening. Can't see that happening today. Man, I am hoping, I am praying that we get to that point when it comes to police brutality amongst poor folks, amongst black folks, amongst brown folks, amongst the black community. Hoping, hoping, hoping. George Floyd, this generation's Emmett Till. George Floyd, this generation's Rodney King, paying the price for hopefully the advancement of not just black folks, but for everybody. Wendell's World in Sports, speaking about what's happening concerning the Derek Chauvin trial, the verdict, I shall say. You know what also I took away from the verdict? For those who want to sit there and bemoan and boohoo, violence, looting, destruction, burning, rioting. Guess what? Sometimes it works. Sometimes it plays a role. And you can't tell me that when those jurors were deliberating, that it was like anybody here who might be slipping, anybody here who might be falling for the bullshit of the defense, well, he was a big guy, well, he was on drugs and all this kind of stuff. For those who want to go ahead, and not do the right thing. For those of you who are, might be thinking about, well, you know, hey, let's just convict them on one of the three. Or second degree murder, nah, let's find them not guilty on that one. Remember what we're dealing with. Remember what's going to happen if we come back with some bullshit verdict. Minneapolis is going to burn to the ground. We live in this community. We have family in this community. Some of us, some of us might have children in this community. Someone, some of us might want to live the rest of our lives in this community. You realize if you're going to be that person, you realize if you're going to be the one who's going to sit there and be like, well, I mean, you know, was it really second degree? I mean, after all, 
he was heated, and after all, George Floyd was a criminal, former criminal, after all this, after all that, you know, policing is a tough job, blah, blah, blah. If you really want to go that route, remember initially what happened as far as our city is concerned when some bullshit like that went down. Think about last summer. Do we really want to go through that again? That ain't pressuring. That ain't a situation where it's kind of like, oh, well, you know, that, that, that's not uh, anything in terms of, you know, tainting the jury or anything like that. I'm just saying that played a major, I bet you that played a part. I don't know if it played the part. I don't know if it played a major part. But um, for those who want to sit there and say violence, looting, burning, destruction to sometimes voice display our anger and frustration toward things, it doesn't work. It's counterproductive. Uh, I'm thinking in this decision, it definitely wasn't. It definitely wasn't. I wasn't in the jury room. I didn't hear the deliberations. I didn't hear the possible arguments between folks who were contemplating whether Chauvin should have been found innocent or guilty on some of these charges. I wasn't there. So I wasn't privy to any of the conversations. But I would bet that somewhere along the stage, somewhere along the lines where they were putting some stuff down about what we're going to do here, I'm quite sure someone said, remember, remember the importance that we have. Remember this is history making, one way or the other. Are we going to have Minneapolis be like Watts in 1960s? Or be like Newark in 1960s? Or be like Detroit in 1960s? Are we going to go there? Do we want to do that? Do we want to do that? Do we want to be on the wrong side of history? And then also have ourselves out there for the public in our communities. Do we really want to go there? So that's one of the things I took from the verdict. Hey man, I don't want, I don't, I don't like looting, burning, destruction, violence. I don't like that. But sometimes you got to do what you got to do. And I'm sorry, how do you think this country was founded? How do you think we became a country? How do you think we got out of the grasp of England and became a nation of our own? Oh, I'm sorry. It was through looting, rioting, violence. The revolution of 1776, where we're speaking about friend versus foe, where we're speaking about brother versus brother, where we're speaking about father versus son, mother versus daughter, in terms of do we want to remain a colonial a part of England, or do we want to be our own nation? It broke up families. Why do you think the Boston Tea Party went down? How do you think those who opposed the, how, where do you think tar and feathered came from? When you had, at the beginning of the revolution, when you had even people thinking about this, Thomas Jefferson and those, John Hancock and those, when they were speaking, when they would be in taverns, speaking undercover, speaking in secrecy because they knew if they were speaking about this and they got back to England that's treason that's treason they would be hung so when Thomas Paine wrote his uh pamphlets and when this stuff went down in terms of whether we should be a country of our own or still be under the thumb or still be under the rule of England you gotta remember during that time you still have folks who were living in this country that were still loyal to the king and for those who wanted to separate Oh, yeah. Anybody who they would see that might be still for the king, torn feather. They would be met with violence. Anybody, as far as the media is concerned, printing presses are concerned, that would be pro-England, those would be looted. Those would be destroyed. 
So don't give me this all of a sudden. Now, black people were the one who all of a sudden came up with the idea of looting and violence and rioting to show their frustration and to show their anger towards something about something that should be done. Hey, man, looting, violence, destruction, that's like hot dogs. That's like baseball hot dogs, apple pie, and Chevrolet, baby, when it comes to this country. So don't give me that nonsense. So, yes, looting, violence, sometimes it can be used as an advantage. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us speaking about what went down with the trial of Derek Chauvin before I start getting into what I want to be talking about later on in the world of sports. But um, hopefully this will be the last time I even get to talk about this because, you know, we'll be moving in a more harmonious direction toward equality and and unity for everybody. So hopefully this will be the last time in a long time because I'm a sports talk show. This is a sports talk podcast. You know, I'm not trying to be Van Jones. I'm not trying to be CNN. I'm not trying to be Joy Reid. I'm not trying to be Angela Rye. Definitely ain't trying to be Al Sharpton. I'm not trying to be any of those guys. I ain't, you know, trying to do that type of stuff. That's not my podcast. My podcast is not about politics. Don't want to talk about politics. Don't want to be speaking about these type of things. But when something like this goes down and it permeates into the sports world and something that is as historical as this, if not long term, but in the short term, got to talk about it. Got to get into it. Because, you know, when I speak about sports, get uh, energetic, I get passionate, and it's like I'm up here going to be ranting and raving about what position Trey Lance should be going in in the NFL draft. And meanwhile, a situation like this in the real world happened. Perspective, perspective. So I got to show you and everybody else that, yeah, man, I haven't lost my perspective. I'm not just getting my head in the sand and reading the ESPNs and reading the Fox Sports and reading the Bleacher Reports and reading the Sports Illustrated and nothing else. I want to uh, let you guys know what my thoughts and feelings are about much more important things than where a person is going to be drafted or if a team is going to be able to do well in the playoffs or what's going to be the record for a regular season or what person is going to win the MVP or who's going to get the most goals or who's going to win the Cy Young. I mean, you know, this is what's happening right now with Derek Chauvin, man. This is what's going down as far as criminal justice is concerned. Man, is a lot more important than that so that's the reason why i'm putting this bad boy first this is the reason why i'm spending so much time on this and this is hopefully the reason why i won't have to speak about this for a long long time and just talk about the ridiculous things like sports sports and sports but getting back very quickly i'll end this by saying this another thing that kind of uh caught me that kind of i third eye my third eye saw when I was taking a look at this after the verdict was read and after that domestic terrorist was found guilty of murder. I said, again, and I asked some friends about this. I said, man, you know, again, this happened in Minneapolis, Minneapolis, Minnesota. What would have happened? How would this trial have played out if this was in another part of the country, if this was in another county, if this had taken place in Harrison, Arkansas, in Boone County, Arkansas, how would it have played out? If this would have happened in Forsyth County in Georgia, how would it have played out? If this would have happened in Newcastle, Oklahoma, that county, how would it have played out? The Tallahatchie County in Mississippi, Tallahatchie, whatever that place is in Mississippi, where they have the site of the Emmett Till Memorial, who, by the way, had been consistently vandalized and had to be replaced with a bulletproof sign, if it took place deep in the heart of that, out of that county, how would this verdict have turned out? I don't know. 
I'm not saying that uh, Chauvin would be walking out of the uh, courtroom a free man. I don't know. I'm asking you. I'm asking you for that. I have no idea. Now, I can take an educated guess and say if this shit went down in Boone County, Arkansas, or somewhere in Georgia, or somewhere in Elkhorn, Indiana, or somewhere in Coleman County, Alabama, or somewhere in Hayden Lake, Idaho, I'm guessing, I'm putting my money on that he would either A, be acquitted, or B, probably... He wouldn't be convicted of second-degree murder. I know that for sure. Maybe get a slap on the wrist. That would be my guess. That would be my estimation. That would be what I was going to be going with. I don't know, though. I don't know. I don't know. But that also came into my mind about what are we going to be doing here as far as moving this forward? Are we looking at an outlier? Are we looking at something now that's going to start being more consistent? Because there's always going to be bad cops. There's always going to be domestic terrorists. I've never, never, ever said that, hey, man, you know, we have a problem here because police officers are murdering black people and they need to stop. We know that's not going to happen. Just like we know racism is never going to be eradicated. Just like crime is never going to be eradicated. Just like, uh, you know, violence is going, never going to be eradicated. I mean, thing, those things are never going to happen. There's no, there's no ploy, there's no program there's no weeding out process that you can find to where you can eliminate all bad cops. Where all cops want to go out there and be peacemakers and patrol the community and have a good relationship in the community. We, we know that's never going to happen. Just like we know there's always going to be bigots. We always know that there's going to be really stupid people who um, believe in such stupidity as bigotry, in, in um, racism, and homophobia. We, we, we know that. We know that. But... We need to put some roadblocks in place. We need to start having some type of uh, parameters. We need to start having those type of things to where, you know what, if you're going to do those things, there's going to be a consequence. And I'm quite sure that this is a situation where if we start having true justice, true justice, true justice for those who commit those crimes, true consequence for the actions then a police officer will think twice before he pulls out his gun. An officer will think twice before he puts someone in a chokehold. An officer will think twice when he puts his knee on someone's neck to subdue him. If an officer knows that, shit, if I shoot this guy, then I'm going to be going to prison for, my, for the rest of my life, and I'm going to be spending the next 50 to 75 years either in isolation or in general population with the folks that I put in jail myself, then he might think twice before pulling out that gun before pulling out that taser, before putting that knee on the neck, before putting somebody in a chokehold. That's what I'm talking about, man. You start having some real justice, all of a sudden now, these gung-ho motherfuckers who want to get into the police department because they want to be a Tango in Cash, or they want to be uh, uh, Martin, Lawrence, Martin Lawrence and um, Will Smith and Bad Boys, or they want to be Clint Eastwood and make somebody's day, they'll think twice because they know if they, if they try that shit, if they try, try to be Charles Bronson, guess what? They'll be starring in the new prison film, Penitentiary, Penitentiary Blue. So we don't know. So that's the deal with us. That's the deal that I'm putting down with that. That's the thing that I was thinking about during all of these things. So the athletes responding to the conviction, LeBron James tweeted accountability. Russell Wilson tweeted love wins. Carl Anthony Towns tweeted, justice and accountability, things I never thought I would see. There's much more work to do, 
but this is an amazing start toward the reform this country needs. Trey Young tweeted, way more work to go. So I love the fact that these guys have their eye on the ball, the big picture. Billie Jean King tweeted, today justice was served for George Floyd. His loved ones can hopefully sleep easier. The time to collectively examine the treatment of black people, in particular black boys, men, by some law enforcement is long overdue. So yeah, man, I I understand. Look, this verdict didn't cure, ease, extinguish, take away racism, bigotry, oppression, privilege based on race, ignorance of each other, discrimination, black folks driving or you know driving, walking, talking, eating, sleeping, minding your own business while black. We know those things still exist. We know housing discrimination exist school inequality workplace inequality workplace discrimination criminal justice discrimination those things still exist Derek Chauvin the conviction of Derek Chauvin didn't make all of those things go away but uh it's still something that uh we have to start as far as the trend is concerned if you if you violate the rights of a citizen you are going to pay dearly for it. Less than 10 officers have been convicted of murder over the last 15 years of killing innocent innocent civilians. That's got to change. That's got to change. And just to remind folks, you know what? Hey, man, we still got more work to be done. The same day of the George Floyd uh, verdict, a black teenager, 15 years old, was shot dead by police in Columbus, Ohio. Michaela Bryant, that was the name of the victim. She was an honor roll student. She was shot dead in an incident Tuesday afternoon. Says here the shooting took place when officers were called to a disturbance on the southeast side of the city after reports of an attempted stabbing. Now, according to the Columbus Dispatch, four police officers responded, or police officers responded after they received a 911 call where a person reported a woman trying to stab them and then hung up. Hazel Bryant told the newspaper that uh, yes she had gotten to a fight with another person at the time but while the younger one had a knife she dropped it before she was shot multiple times by the officer we're having a police officer shoot somebody 15 or excuse me who's 15 years old multiple times and you're a police officer what type of knife does she have a machete a samurai sword? What are we talking about here? You gonna pull out a gun? You don't have rubber bullets anywhere? You don't have a taser? You don't have communication skills? Rubber bullets and a taser should be the absolutely positively last thing you do. There's no communication skills over here? There's no talking with other folks to find out what's going on and having them help and try to uh, say, hey, you know, talk to her. Tell her, you know, to calm down, relax, put the knife down at the very least. Tell her we're not looking for anything like this. We don't want to be Derek Chauvin's. We don't want to be, you know, in that realm. We don't want to have to do those things. Tell her, please, put the knife down if you feel that threatened. She didn't have a gun. She didn't have an AK-47. She didn't have an Uzi. A knife? A knife? 15 years old? And you shoot her multiple times? That's how you handle that situation? Long way to go. Long way to go. So, 
you know, what's going to end the majority of racist behavior toward black people in this country? I want you to listen to something by the legend. I want you to listen to something said by the true American hero, true American icon, the great Malcolm X, when he was talking about black nationalism concerning political, social ways. My definition of what black nationalism is, or my uh, um, solution, or my example of what we should try to do, not just with black folks, but with folks all together, what my definition of black nationalism means, taken from the great Malcolm X. Let him explain. My personal political philosophy, black nationalism, which means that the black man should control the politics of his own community and control the politicians who are in his own community. My personal economic philosophy is uh, also black nationalism, which means that the black man should have a hand in controlling the economy of the so-called Negro community. He should be developing the type of knowledge that will enable him to own and operate the businesses and thereby be able to create employment for his own people, for his own kind. And the uh, social philosophy also is black nationalism, which means that instead of the black man trying to force himself into the society of the white man, we should be trying to eliminate from our own society the ills and the, the defects and make ourselves uh, likable and sociable among our, among our own kind. The only way the problem can be solved, first, the white man and the black man have to be able to sit down at the same table. The white man has to feel free to speak his mind without hurting the feelings of that Negro. And the so-called Negro has to feel free to speak his mind without hurting the feelings of the white man. Then they can bring the issues that are under the rug out on top of the table and take an intelligent approach to get the problem solved. That's the only way that they'll ever do it. We need an action program while we are Muslims, or while we are Christians, or while we are whatever we are. We still need an action program that will eliminate these evils that are in our community. This is what we're trying to do with the Muslim Mosque Incorporated. Do you consider yourself militant? <laughs> I consider myself Malcolm. So there we go. True definition right there. Definition of black nationalism concerning politics. Black man should control the politics of his own community. Definition of black nationalism concerning economics. That the black man should have a hand in controlling the economy in the community. And developing the type of knowledge that would be able to own and operate uh, different businesses within their own community. And then the definition of black nationalism concerning uh, socialism, social issues, is instead of enforcing integration amongst the races, then the black people, black community, should be trying to eliminate the ills and the defects that uh, inflict the our community and uh, move forward that way. And I really love the fact that he made the point that, you know, black folks, white folks, get together at the table, sit, have a frank conversation about what's going on, their thoughts, their feelings. Don't worry about hurting each other's feelings. Don't worry about uh, don't being nice guys. Don't worry about being who's the good guy or bad guy. Let's be honesty. Let's use honesty to bring together respect and unity, the greatest of them all. Do you consider yourself militant? No, I consider myself Malcolm. Oh, man, every time I think about the greatness of Malcolm X, every time I hear the greatness of Malcolm X. It just, Farrakhan can't go to hell quick enough. I want Farrakhan in hell so he can join his buddy Elijah Poole and the rest of those fucking clowns who were responsible for the assassination of the greatest of them all, Malcolm X. Louis, burn in hell right where you belong. So, uh, the greatness of Malcolm X. So, hey man, before I end this, before I, uh, 
end this segment. I want to say thank you very much for your time and patience in having me get this off my chest. Um, it's about unity, man. It's about unity. Nationalism, black nationalism, there should be Asian nationalism, Hispanic nationalism. And then we take the best of what we are as a community and blend them in with each other, man. It's that simple. The black community and the Hispanic community and the white community and the Jewish community and the Asian community and the Muslim community and the gay community, man. I mean, let's just bring the best of everything as far as our community is concerned. It's not about separation. It's about bringing it together. It's about integration, not separation. That's what it's all about, man. So we're not talking about, I know Malcolm during that time, hey man, you know, different time and space during his uh, period of living, when we're speaking about separation before he got away from that cult known as the ancient of Islam and uh, was bringing his godly qualities into, into what was uh, going down, what was bringing down, what was happening during that time period. But now it's like, let's use our nationalism to strengthen our communities in terms of the economy, in terms of the political scene, in terms of uh, the social issues. Let's strengthen so we can have folks from all over come on in of the same mindset of love, peace, unity, harmony, goodness. Let's keep the bigots, let's keep the racists, let's keep the fools, let's keep the privileged, let's keep those jackasses out of there, man. You know, let 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 those folks run to their Matt Gates. Let those jackasses run to their Ted Cruz's. Let those pieces of shit run to their uh, Justin Hollies. Let those ignorant fools be fooled, be conned by Marjorie Taylor Greene. Let those people do their thing. Let's put them off to the side, marginalize them. Ignore them. Minimize them. Take away their strength. Take away their power. And let's have the goodness of everybody else come on in and crush that foolishness. Crush that bigotry. Crush that ignorance. Crush that uh, stupidity that those jackasses and their uh, members follow. You vote for Tom. If you voted for Marjorie Taylor Greene or Ted Cruz or Justin Hawley, you a fool. You a damn fool. You're ignorant, you're racist, you're stupid, you're something, one of them three, you, or, or, a, or a combination of all of them to be voting for and believing those assholes. But hey, you know what? We don't live in, in a utopian society. So R.I.P. to George Floyd. For those who have paid the ultimate price of dying at the hands of the domestic terrorists, murderers, wearing a blue uniform, and a license to murder black and brown people. R.I.P. to those. R.I.P. who has fallen prey, who have given their lives for the advancement of all. Let's use what happened in terms of the verdict to send that asshole away for a long time. Let's use this as a starting point for true peace, love, soul, and harmony. We all agree tonight, all of the speakers have agreed that America has a very serious problem. Not only does America have a very serious problem, but our people have a very serious problem. America's problem is
Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. Bonjour, bonsoir, monsieur, mademoiselle. Je m'appelle Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World in Sports. Shalom, wassalam alaikum, my brothers and sisters. Konnichiwa, namaste. Que pasa, mi amigos? Mi amo Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World in Sports. Self-destruction. You're headed for self-destruction. Ah, one thing about um, terms of unity harmony and all those type of things i was a huge hip-hop rap fan in fact i was a huge fan before rap was known as hip-hop and all that type of stuff one thing that i'll uh, never really i don't know come together unify or anything like that can't uh, get with folks who want to especially from my generation and want to sit there and talk about how back in the day when rap was truly rap when i was growing up when I first got into it and all those type of things, because I was right at the focal point, man, 52 years old. So I was right at the focal point of when hip hop started growing up in the Washington DC metropolitan area, best place to live, best place to grow up, best place to raise your children. Back in the day, I was right there. So I was, we were at the beginning. Our, my generation was at the beginning of when all of this started. And while go-go music with Chuck Brown and those guys are always going to be the king the fact that, man, you know, East Coast rap, that was where it was at. If there's only th if there's anything good that came out of New York City, it was rap. That's the best thing that probably come out of New York City. So it's like, I'm always East Coast, man. For me, East Coast rap, that's where it's at. So if you're going to be speaking about, for my generation, you're going to be speaking about West Coast rap, man, get out of here with that nonsense, man. I got nothing for you. I got nothing for you. Go back to YouTube. Go back and start digging in the crates and pull out some albums. Go ahead and pull out some Rock Kim Malar. Go out and pull out some Heavy D. Go out and pull out some Big Daddy King. Go out and pull out some Queen Latifah. Go out and pull, pull out EPMD. Go out and pull out some Public Enemy. The best. The best. Cool Modi. The best. The best. That's what I'm talking about. You clowns in Southern California and L.A. You clowns down in um the Two Life Crew down there. You clowns but Master P. No, 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 no. Uh-uh, uh-uh. The ghetto boys and all that kind of stuff. Uh-uh. Even in the Bay Area with, um, with uh, oh my goodness gracious, the name escapes me. The name escapes me. Shit. Too short. Yeah, too short. Too weak. Too clownish. Kidding me, man? Ain't nobody going to be touching Rakim Alar. Ain't nobody going to be touching Cool Modi. Ain't nobody going to be touching the B-I-G-D-A-Double-D-Y-K-A-N. Ain't nobody ain't through. Nobody's going to be touching Heavy D. What are y'all crazy? No one's going to be touching um, C.L. Smooth. No one's going to be touching those guys. Nobody. East Coast, man. That's where it's at. That's where it will always be. Self-destruction. I headed for self headed for self-destruction. One thing in that video, if you go back and look, they should have had Big Daddy rapping. He was in the video. They should have put... Uh, should have gave him an opportunity, him an opportunity to do something. But the only thing I will find, like, eh, really, we needed to go there. 
was you had Tone Loke and you had uh, Young MC in that video. Thank God they weren't rapping. But good Lord, yes, Young MC was in that video. The Young MC of You Say Nito, Check Your Libido, and Roll to the Church in Your New Tuxedo. <clears throat> Thanks for playing. Don't call us. We'll call you. And Tone Loke. The wild thing. Dun, 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 bam. I mean, that... That 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 was the whole point of the song. His rapping stunk. It was that bounce, 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 bounce. I mean, that was the that's what got that song so popular. It had nothing to do with the rapping skills. I don't know, man. Maybe they were good guys or this, that, and the other. But man, as far as rappers are concerned, when you're going to be up there with uh, KRS-One, you're going to be up there with MC Light. When you're going to be up there with with, with those heavyweights, you're going to be in a video like that. You're going to be putting together a video like that. You're going to be talking about. Uh, a, a situation, a social situation like that. Come on now. And then you're also going to have D-Nice up there rapping, the man who was responsible, the man who played the part, or the band whose actions caused the death of Scott LaRock. You're going to have, you're going to put the uh, mic in his hand, his hand and say something instead of Big Daddy Kane. Y'all couldn't get Rakim? Damn. Those are my only, like, you know, a part of that video. But, you know, it was a good video. And then the West Coast, Neezy, and those clowns tried to go ahead and do something. Man, get the fuck out of here with your bullshit. Gonna try to uh, match lyrical witticism, lyrical strength, lyrical talent with those that came from the East Coast. Come on, man. LA, man, you, y'all, must, y'all, must be, y'all must be crazy. Y'all must be crazy. We got Ice Cube, and we've got uh, Easy e and we got... Man, get the fuck out of here with that bullshit. Even when I moved from the East to uh, go out to San Diego. Mm-mm. No, man. They were giving me that bullshit about West Coast, West Coast rap, West Coast rap. Uh-uh. No, I brought everything humanly possible I could as far as East Coast is concerned. And I played that loud, louder, and the loudest. Educate those clowns out there about West Coast rap bullshit. The real rap East Coast always will be, always will be. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad. That you could be with us. All right, let's get to some more sports, shall we? Oh, the draft, the draft, the NFL draft, the draft, the draft, the NFL draft. Less than two weeks away. I'm almost to the point where it's kind of like, man, can we just get to the number three pick in the draft so we can, you know, start this draft? Everybody knows that Jacksonville is going to select Trevor Lawrence. Everybody knows with the number two pick, the New York Jets is going to, are going to select Zach Wilson. Now it's all about, man, what are the San Francisco 49ers going to do? That's when the draft really starts. Are they going to go with Mac Jones, Mac Jones, Mac Jones, Mr. and Mrs. Jones? Are they going to go with Justin Fields? Are they going to go with Trey Lance? What does it mean for Jimmy Garoppolo if they get Justin uh, Fields or maybe Mac Jones? What does it mean for Jimmy Garoppolo if they draft Trey Lance, if they draft um, Trey Lance, that means Jimmy Garoppolo should be staying with those guys at least for a year because Trey Lance is not even close to be able to start in an NFL football game and be successful. So I wouldn't be able, I mean, if they're going to be drafting Trey Lance, it's got to be because Kyle Shanahan is very bullish on his skills to turn anything into superstardom. And he takes a look at the the physical skills, skills and the potential and the tools of Trey Lance and saying, hey, man, you give that guy two or three years in my system, I'll turn that guy into a franchise quarterback who can uh, lead us to championships and he can be a perennial pro bowler and be one of the 
faces of the league in terms of quarterback play is concerned. Just give me a few years. So if that's the case, Jimmy Garoppolo shouldn't be going anywhere. If it's a situation where it's like, look, man, I got to win right now. I need the quarterback that's best available, the best fit my system so we can go out and we can start winning games now, then I guess their eye of their desire is going to be on Mac Jones. If that's the case, then Mac Jones should be starting game number one. Even if you select any of these three quarterbacks, Fields, Jones, or Lance, I wonder if Shanahan and um, Shanahan and uh, John Lynch had a meeting or had a sit down with uh, Jed York, the owner of the team, and was like, "Look, man, um, look, I know that we had that one great year. We went thirteen and three." Went through the Super Bowl. Fantastic. How much are you leaning on that? Because the other three years that we've been the trio or the duo of coach and GM, we haven't been that good. Overall, we're 29 and 35. You took away the Super Bowl year. We're 16 and 32. I know you gave us a six-year contract, which meant that, you know what, we're committed the long term to you guys. I understand that came under a lot of pressure because at the time when Jed York decided to give contracts to Lynch and to Shanahan for that length of time. You know, most coaches, especially first coaches, first year, uh, first time coaches, get four years. You know, some get five, but they get six. That signified that you know what I'm going to give these time. I'm going to give these guys time to uh, grow and get better. Well, it's a situation where it's kind of like you know, at the time, Jed York was considered a villain. Jed York was considered incompetent. Jed York was almost considered like the Daniel Snyder of the West Coast without the claims of sexual harassment and dysfunction within other parts of the uh, football organization. Just the way that he ran his football team from the field, that was where the comparison of Dan Snyder was concerned with Jed York due to its incompetence, due to its dysfunctions, due to its um, lack of success on the football field. So the signing of Shanahan and Lynch and giving them six-year contracts was his signal to the fans, ticket goers, advertisers, like, look, I'm going to back off, I'm going to be hands-off, and I'm going to give these guys time to uh, grow, learn, succeed, fail, and ultimately get to the point where we're perennial championship contenders. How long does Jed York keep his patience if in three of the four years that the duo of Shanahan and Lynch have been at the helm of the San Francisco organization, the 49ers organization, that one of the years they've had success in the other three, they've been failures. Now, coming into the first year, it was a situation where it's like, look, this is a bad record is going to be expected. And even moving into the second year, you know, a bad season is going to be expected because we're such we're at such a low place right now that I don't give a damn who you put in there. I don't give a damn that you dig up Bill Walsh and Vince Lombardi and a couple of others and put them on the sideline. We just don't have the talent right now to compete. So the first couple of years, don't worry about the record. We know it's going to be bad, but as long as we see progress, we'll be happy with that. Third year, they make it to the Super Bowl, and everyone's like, well, it's just it should be a cinch that Shanahan and Lynch are going to be able to continue their relationship with the 49ers organization for at least the next four or five years, going to a Super Bowl, having a 13-3 and season, most of the time will give a coach the latitude of at least two to three years. I mean, if they fall off the cliff, if, you know, they go to the Super Bowl one year and then the next season they go, 
seven to nine and then five and eleven or something like that. I mean, you would still get that third extra year because of the success that you had with the uh, with taking the team to the Super Bowl. But I would just kind of double check if I'm Lynch and Shanahan in terms of, hey, look, if we go ahead and we draft Trey Lance with the number three pick, you do realize that he's probably not going to get on the football field for any type of consistent minutes until maybe near the end of the second year. And we're going to keep Garoppolo. We know we're paying him a boatload of money, but are you okay with that? Are you all right with that? Are you, are you down with that, Mr. York? So it all depends on, you know, th- those different types of things. But I don't know, man. Matt Jones and Justin Fields and Trey Lance, I, I don't know what the 49ers are going to do. I, I just don't. If they would have traded Garoppolo or something like that, I would say, oh, you know, all signs are, are pointing to them drafting a Matt Jones. The fact that they haven't uh, traded, the fact that they said that they're not going to trade uh, Garoppolo, I don't know what that means. I don't know what that means. To me, wouldn't you draft Mac Jones with the understanding that, like Joe Burrow with the Cincinnati Bengals last year, that he's going to be the perimeter starting quarterback? So if that's the case, Garoppolo's going to be a backup quarterback, making the type of money that he's going to be making. When you know you have people who will take a flyer on a quarterback, you think that if the 49ers called up the Chicago Bears and let's talk quarterback with Jimmy Garoppolo, that the Bears wouldn't be interested? You're speaking about others, possibly, that might be interested in Garoppolo? I, I think so. I'm not saying that you could get the haul that the Detroit Lions got with Matthew Stafford. I'm not saying that you would get the haul or the draft picks or the equity that the uh, New York Jets got with the uh, Carolina Panthers when they traded Sam Darnold. But I'm quite sure that there's teams out there that could use a Jimmy Garoppolo as their starting quarterback right now, and you could get a pretty decent deal out of it. So if you're going to be drafting a Mac Jones, if you're the 49ers, um, why are we having Jimmy Garoppolo still be on the team? Now, I don't know what a salary cap hit is. I don't know how much he would cost to get the cap. But if you're going to be turning your team over to Mac Jones, you're going to have that uh, rookie contract for, what, four or five years, something like that? So I don't know. I don't know what's going to be happening. Wendell's World in Sports, the podcast. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So Trey Lance of North Dakota State, had his second pro day on Monday, this past Monday. And guess who was in attendance? San Francisco 49er head coach Kyle Shanahan and general manager John Lynch. They were in attendance to watch him throw in person. Now, it was significant because those two guys missed the first throwing sessions that uh, Lance had on March 12th, roughly two weeks before making the trade with the Miami Dolphins. For the number three pick. And according to an ESPN report, Lance recently started working with quarterback coach John Beck at the request of Shanahan after the 49ers made their trade to move up to uh, the number three position on March 26. The 49ers were reportedly, quote, heavily involved in orchestrating Lance's throwing session that they were, as they were with uh, Ohio State's Justin Fields pro day last week. So, you know, this is a situation where, hmm, interesting, interesting. John Beck working with Trey Lance at the request of Shanahan. Shanahan and Lynch going to a second pro day. Shanahan and Lynch orchestrating the throwing session. Where there's smoke, there's fire. Where, why would they be doing all that if they already know that they're going to be 
drafting Mac Jones. If their man is already Mac Jones, why are they even wasting their time going up to Fargo, North Dakota? Last time I checked, that's a that's a long, long away from South Beach or the Strip in Vegas or down on the beach in um, in Los Angeles. Why are they going to Fargo, North Dakota to watch some guy throw if, including uh, according to many reports, that they've already made their mind up to select Mac Jones? Dotting I's and crossing T's. Who knows? Who knows? So, you know, Lance had a pretty good pro day. Other teams that showed up to watch him, Denver, Chicago, the Patriots, Atlanta. Now, the Falcons have the number four pick. Interesting. Denver had the number nine pick. Interesting. New England had the number 15 pick. Interesting. And I believe Chicago's pick is either number 20 or somewhere around that range. Very interesting. If there are a situation where Trey Lance might drop. I can't see him moving past the Patriots. I can't see him moving past the Broncos. So with the Chicago Bears coming, are they hoping and praying that something pops up? Are they going to do are they going to be taking a look, a closer look to say, you know what, we have to be a little bit more aggressive, putting the heat on New England with New England there, where they're just lukewarm and Chicago was all in after watching this draft, after watching this pro day by Lance. Are they going to uh try to maneuver above Ahead of New England to draft Trey Lance? I don't know. Have no idea. Also, if there's going to be uh, folks from the organization from not only New England but also Chicago, you know how it is when those guys are just shooting the shit with each other and talking and kicking the fat and all those type of things in between uh, getting things together for the pro day and all that kind of stuff, some downtime. Those guys playing poker, those guys have their poker face on. Are those guys from Chicago, those guys from New England, doing a little bit of investigating, talking with the Falcons and the Broncos and those guys while they're chit-chatting and they're just hee-hee-heeing and ha-ha-ha and just small-talking and bullshitting? Are they trying to get some reads? Are they trying to uh, read between the lines here? Maybe ask a strategic question during their hee-hee-ha-ha bullshit period to maybe see? Ah, yeah, that's it. Yeah, that Lance has got some arm, huh? Yeah, I could still really see you guys using him. Yeah, possibly, maybe, could this, that, and the other. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting how they said, possibly, yeah, maybe, could. Didn't sound the conviction. Didn't sound like they were really into it. It was, uh-huh, yeah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Maybe they are going to go with Kyle Pitts. Maybe they are going to go with Jamar Chase. Maybe they are going to uh, trade out of that pick. Who knows? So it's that type of bullshit, I think, that type of stuff where you're talking about games being played, when you're talking about gamesmanship, when you're talking about, you know, hey, hey, uh, guy for the uh, Falcons, come here for a second. If you're the Bears, come here for a second. So uh, you heard anything about New England? You guys been in contact with them or what? I mean, you know, what's happening? You guys, uh, you guys really thinking about moving down for that pick? I mean, if you do, I mean, are we talking about what? Probably... 15? You're going to go down that low? Really? Interesting. Oh, okay. Wow. You know, you know are, we, are we talking about that type of small talk? Hey, man, you know, we've been friends for a while, right? I mean, we've been on the same roads. We've been on the same... We've been done. You know, we, we, we've gone to dinner and all those type of things. You know, we've been in this game for a long time. I mean, you know, you can trust me. I can trust you, man. What's up? What's up with, uh, what's up with your squad, man? What are they looking to do, for real? Are they going to uh, really stay at number four? Are y'all really going to be interested in Trey Lance? I mean, what about Justin Fields? Y'all ain't interested in him? 
I mean, those type of conversations, I think, go down at these pro days between some of these organizations. So it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting. So the highlights from Trey Lance's throwing session, I'm going to be talking about it here on Wendell's World of Sports Podcast with yours truly, Wendell Wallace. He repeatedly threw deep strikes down the field. His first ball, in fact, he threw, traveled 60 yards in the air with ease. If I'm Denver and I'm playing in that mile high stadium at that altitude, I'm like, wow, if he throws that 60 yards, just imagine what he can do eight times a year playing in front of our home fans in that altitude. So, look, the scouts take on Trey Lance. He's got a live arm, an athletic body. He's got that elongated delivery, Tim Tebow-ish, maybe. And he's, had, he's good with play action. I was listening to a great Cosell, and he was talking about, look, man, when it came to a play action, as far as the quarterbacks that are being drafted, including Trevor Lawrence, including Zach Wilson, and then you throw in Mac Jones and Justin Fields, out of all of those guys, the guy that executes the play action pass the best, by far, without question, is Trey Lance. Because of the nature of the offense that he played at North Dakota State involved a lot of play action passes and two running backs in the backfield. So as far as the conventional play action passing and then being able to uh, find a read, find an open receiver and read the defenses from that situation, it's different than, it's a different uh, point of view from lining up under center and in shotgun formation all the time. So from that standpoint, Trey Young is farther developed than any of the other quarterbacks in this draft. So he can throw on the run. He's got a big arm. He can get the ball downfield. So Greg Cassell was like, look, yeah, he's going to need some uh, time. He's going to need some uh, coaching. He's going to need some teaching. He's going to do all those things. But uh, there's a lot of things out here that uh, that I like. There's some things out there that uh, he's already more advanced than others, which are translatable to the NFL. And when you take a look at his measurables, Lance is around six foot four, two hundred and twenty-four pounds, can run the forty-yard dash in four point five seconds. As a ref- shirt freshman in twenty nineteen, he completed almost sixty-seven percent of his passes for almost twenty-eight hundred yards, twenty-eight touchdowns, no interceptions. He also ran for eleven hundred yards and fourteen touchdowns, led the Bison to a sixteen and no record, and the FCS national title, division what one double A. National title. Now, he didn't play this past season because of COVID issues, except for one showcase exhibition game where 14 for 28. But I mean, you know, I mean, he didn't play against anybody for real. So, you know, scouts' minds weren't going to change one way or the other on that. But uh, there's some accuracy issues and other things. But the physical tools, the physical talent is there. It's just a matter of what are we going to do with a guy who started only 16, 19 games in his college career, which is like, okay, well, what are you going to do with Mac Jones? How many games did he start? What are you going to do with Zach Wilson? How many games did he, when did Zach Wilson become uh, a guy on the radar? I mean, this wasn't a situation like Trevor Lawrence from his freshman year to the end of his career at Clemson, that this was, you know, the guy who was clearly the man of this, that, and the other. I mean, we saw the potential. We saw the talent. We saw the success that he had. I mean, with Mac Jones, he came in for a few games against um, in his in his uh, what his sophomore year or his yeah his sophomore year when uh, Tua got injured. I mean, not too much to read right there, but I mean, basically, we're basing 
the accomplishments and the draft projection of Mac Jones based on one season. So what's the difference there between Lance and Mac Jones when we're speaking about relatively uh, small sample sizes in terms of what they can do? And you're also speaking about, and I mentioned this before, everybody's going to mention this, Mac Jones played was one of the best offensive linemen in the country, the best running back in the country, the best wide receiver in the country, the best team in the country. He was surrounded by talent. Is he Mitchell Trubisky? Is he Joe Burrow in terms of translating that success to the next level? The one-year wonder. Can he, will he, what's going to be happening making that transition from college to pro? For Joe Burrow, his one-year ascent to superstardom in college football continued in the NFL in terms of, okay, this guy's the real deal. This guy was more of what LSU was talking about more than what he was showing at Ohio State where he had to transfer because he couldn't beat out Dwayne Haskins. Mitchell Trubisky, on the other hand, okay, this guy was clearly a one-hit wonder at North Carolina because moving now into the NFL, check the Buffalo roster. He's second-string quarterback after being the number three draft pick with the Chicago Bears. So there you go. Where is Mac Jones going to end up? Where is Trey Lance going to end up? I don't know, man. We don't know. That's why we're going to find out. If you are a team here on Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast with yours truly, Wendell Wallace, looking to uh, make that move, always a surprise, always a whoa, always a, uh, you know, hold the phone on draft night. If someone is going to make a bold move, what, who is that team and will it involve Trey Lance? It's got to be because it's always about the quarterback. Are we going to be looking like a situation where the Philadelphia Eagles who we thought traded Carson Wentz and now Jeffrey Lurie and um, Howie, uh, oh, the general manager for uh, Philadelphia, Howie Rosen, they're supposedly in love with uh, they're in love with um, Jalen Hurts. Will they go ahead and draft Trey Lance and open up a competition? The coach for the new coach was talking about we're going to have open competition at the quarterback position. Would they? Could they? Would they? The Philadelphia Eagles go ahead and draft the Trey Lance and have him compete with uh, Jalen Hurts or then have Jalen Hurts be the guy, the bridge, in a couple of years for Trey Lance. Interesting. How much, how committed are the Eagles to Jalen Hurts? How long is the leash next season if he is going to be starting? How long will that leash be? Are you going to give Jalen Hurts the opportunity to fail, to succeed, to be inconsistent, to have bad games? to have great games, to have inconsistent games, to have strong games, to continue to improve from week one to week 17? Are the Philadelphia Eagles are going to allow, are they going to allow Jalen Hurts to do that? Or if he starts off slowly by week seven, week eight, we're going to start talking about when are we going to be replacing Jalen Hurts and this was the mistake to let Carson Wentz go. It'll be interesting. But do you throw Trey Lance into that mix if you're the Philadelphia Eagles. If you're the Atlanta Falcons, you got Matt Ryan, who can still be a very good quarterback, but for how long? The Atlanta Falcons, they weren't good last season, but how many leads, especially earlier in the season, did they blow? When we're speaking about losing to the Dallas Cowboys and we're speaking about losing to other teams to where they seem to be snatching defeat from the jaws of victory. If you're the Atlanta Falcons, do you continue to build around Matt uh, Ryan with the understanding, with the philosophy that, look, as long as we got a guy who 
was only a few years removed from getting us to the Super Bowl and being up 28-3 to in the third quarter. I mean, he's, what, three or four years removed from that? He's still somewhere around that stratosphere. And we can compliment him with a Kyle Pitts. And we can compliment him with an offensive lineman that's going to strengthen the offensive line. You still got Julio Jones. You got Calvin Ridley. What do we do here? Do we go ahead for a win-now philosophy? Or do we go ahead and do what the Green Bay Packers did last season by drafting a quarterback, even though the incumbent still presumably has a few more years left in them to play high-level football. So if the Atlanta Falcons, again, man, Arthur Smith is going to be saying, man, I don't know I don't know exactly, you know, his feelings toward, man, you give me that guy, you put that guy in my system, you give that guy to my quarterback coach. I'm telling you, by the time Matt, Matt Ryan time in Atlanta is over, Trey Young is going to be able to do some things as the, uh, as the guy who's going to be the new quarterback. So let's go ahead and draft him and let's solidify our future with the most important position on our team. Are the Falcons going to go ahead and do that? Don't know. Don't know. What about the Detroit Lions? Yeah, what are you talking about, man? They got Jared Goff. Okay, yeah, maybe they got Jared Goff. But look, would the Detroit Lions draft Trey Lance if he was available at number seven? If there's been reports that the... Lions are looking to trade out of that pick. But if they're not, I mean, would you go ahead and make that pick? Would you go ahead and draft Trey Lance? I don't know what the attitude is. I don't know what the opinion for real is concerning the brass of the Detroit Lions. The coach that they have, the new coach that they brought in, he's not this quarterback guru. He's not from the Sean Payton or the Sean McVay tree of offensive geniuses. He doesn't um, come down from... Uh, the tree of Andy Reid. So he's not one of these quarterback gurus, quarterback whisperers, quarterback, uh, uh, you know, magnificent, magnificent folks who will be like, yeah, you give me Trey Lance, I'll turn that guy with that type of talent, that type of physical ability. Yeah, I'll turn him into a superstar because as a quarterback coach, as a guy who does quarterback, as a guy who has a resume turning quarterbacks around or getting the most out of quarterbacks, I can be that guy. You give him to me. Detroit doesn't have a coach that's in that position, and I don't know if they have an offensive coordinator or even a quarterback coach who would have the skills to do that, to make that bold of a move, to, to make a trade, trading away the best quarterback in franchise history for a guy who's supposed to be a bridge keeper. When you have so many different needs for the Detroit Lions, you're going to go ahead and draft Trey Lance? Hmm. But then again, look, the Lions received two first-round selections, a third-rounder in the um, Stafford deal. You take a look what the long-term potential. We know what the ceiling is for Jared Goff. We we, we know kind of what he's going to be as a quarterback. Trey Lance is the Trey Lance is the unknown, it's the wild card, the physical skills, the arm strength. If you can sap into that, if you can get something out of that in two or three years, we know what Jared Goff is going to be. You get Trey Lance rocking and rolling. You get a coach who can unleash that potential. We know that Trey Lance, if that happens, is a better quarterback than Jared Goff. And heaven sakes alive, from Bobby Lane to Eric Hogaboom, how many times, how many quarterbacks, Scott Mitchell, how many quarterbacks, have we gone through Rodney Pete? How many quarterbacks 
have we dealt with if you're the Detroit Lions in terms of trying to find somebody? Joey Harrington, how many times have we gone through this carousel of quarterbacks? When was the last time the Lions had themselves a quarterback worth a damn? The reason why Calvin Johnson said, I've had enough. The reason why Barry Sanders says, I'm hitting the road jack and I'm not coming back no more, no more. Because of the shabby play, because of the inconsistent play, because of the average play of the quarterback position. Not just in the Barry Sanders era, not just in the Calvin Johnson era, but for ever. I don't know what the curse of Bobby Lane was, but geez, man. Name me a quarterback from uh, Detroit that's been any good, except for Matthew Stafford, who's been good, solid, not great, not Hall of Famer-ish. Do you have that in Trey Lance? We don't know. We don't know. Wendell's World in Sports, I end up, I end up into all these, all these thought, presses, thought processes with, I don't know, I don't know. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, because I don't. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad to be that you could be with us. And you don't either. Jackass. So here we go. Speaking about Trey Lance. Here's another thing that I thought about. I'm just thinking about Trey Lance. I got Trey Lance on the brain. Everybody talks about, I mean, you know, 16 games, and he played the South Dakota, North Dakota State. North Dakota State. I mean, he's playing against Youngstown State. Alabama's out there. Their main rival are their main rival for winning championships are programs like Clemson and Ohio State and LSU. In Georgia, what's the main competition for Trey Lance in North Dakota State? Youngstown State? I mean, really? That's kind of like what we're going to be grading on? So the situation is, how much do you put into a quarterback who hasn't played in a Power 5 conference or who hasn't played in a, you know, the Division 1A uh, had played Division One A football. Who's played in one Double A or Division Two or something like that? How much do you put on that in terms of where we're going to draft them? Sometimes, look, if you're going to be drafting a quarterback, it's easier to draft that type of quarterback in the fourth or fifth or sixth round and say that he's a develop, developmental quarterback when no one knows who the hell he is and no one's really interested in the fourth, fifth, or sixth round for the most part. But to make that bold move, say for instance, example, if you're the Detroit Lions. To go ahead and draft Trey Lance, number seven, and then the naysayers start bringing up he only played 16 flipping games and he hadn't played football in over a year, and you're going to go ahead and do this? You're going to draft him over Mac Jones, or if Mac Jones hasn't been selected yet, you're going to draft him over a Mac Jones, you're going to draft him over a Cal Trash, you're going to draft him over a Justin Fields? What? Huh? And, by the way, Detroit, you already have a quarterback on your squad in Jared Goff, who you just uh, acquired? What? What are we talking about? So all of those things come into play. But, look, my deal with quarterbacks, where they played, the level of competition that they played, all of that nonsense, let me tell you something, man. It's all about who, what organization do you go to. And there's been plenty of examples of quarterbacks who haven't been playing at Alabama, who haven't been playing at USC, who hasn't been playing for national championships, who hasn't been winning Heisman trophies, who haven't been the face of college football. There's been plenty of those quarterbacks, or there's been plenty of quarterbacks who haven't had those accolades and came from a Division One AA school or came from a lower-tier Division One A school that has done well at the quarterback in the NFL. I mean, hell, Carson Wentz went to the same school as Lance. He was drafted number two in the 
2016 NFL draft. I mean, and this guy went on to finish third in the MVP a couple of years later and was supposed to be one of the faces of the franchise and is still, is still considered salvageable in the trade with the Eagles that they made with uh, the Indianapolis Colts for uh, Carson Wentz to go over and be reunited because it feels so good with uh, Frank Wright, who was the offensive coordinator with the Philadelphia Eagles. Jimmy Garoppolo and Tony, Tony Robo, Romo, they went to Eastern Illinois. Garoppolo won the Walter Payton Award as a senior in 2013, threw for 5,000 yards, 53 touchdowns, nines interception with a 66% completion record, uh, completion rate. Garoppolo got his team to the um, Super Bowl. Tony Romo had a very fine NFL career. He played at the Eastern Illinois. Joe Flacco won in the first round. He went. He was drafted number 18 by Baltimore, the second QB off the board that year behind Matt Ryan. He went on to lead Baltimore to a Super Bowl while earning the MVP during that game in the year 2012. Steve McNair, Aaron McNair, he was drafted number three in the 1995 draft by the Houston Oilers. He went to Alcorn State. He made three Pro Bowls in his career, won the NFL MVP in 2003, and led the Titans to the uh, Super Bowl. You can say that they made a great move. And you got others. Doug Williams, Super Bowl winner, went to Grambling. Kurt Warner, Hall of Famer, went to Northern Iowa. Phil Simms, Super Bowl champion, went to Moorhead State. Rich Gannon, NFL MVP, went to Delaware. So there's there's plenty of examples of teams drafting players, drafting quarterbacks from non-Power 5 elite football program institutions is still getting the best out of them. And like I said before, man, it comes down to coaching. It comes down to that guy who says, look at that talent. Look at the potential. Give me that guy. And if he doesn't have any character flaws, give me that guy, and I'll turn that into something very prosperous for my career and for the organization and for this football team. And organizations make quarterbacks. Doesn't matter what college they came from. What would have happened, for instance, if Lamar Jackson, Josh Allen, or Baker Mayfield, if they would have been drafted by the New York Jets and been coached by Adam Gaze? Lamar Jackson, you think he would be winning the MVP if he had Adam Gaze as his coach? Do you think Josh Allen would be the third or fourth best football player or best quarterback this past season if he was being coached by Adam Gaze? I mean, hell, how bad of a year did Baker Mayfield have a couple of seasons ago when Freddie Kitchens was his coach. Then Kevin Stefanski comes in, and all of a sudden now Mayfield looks like a quarterback who could be that guy to reach all the expectations for the Cleveland Browns organization and fans. What would have happened if Sam Darnold, instead of being drafted by Gaze, would have been drafted by the San Francisco 49ers with Kyle Shanahan? What happened if Andy Reid had moved up to draft Darnold and allowed him to learn under Alex Smith. Here we go. What happens if Patrick Mahomes isn't drafted by Kansas City and Andy Reid? What happens if Patrick Mahomes doesn't have the opportunity to work under uh, Eric B. Enemy? You could still say, well, because of that talent shit, Mahomes was still going to be great. Would he have been this great? Would he have been already legendary great? Would he have already been considered as one of the greatest quarterbacks who's ever played? Would he have been on that level if he would have gone to the New York Jets, if he would have gone to the Washington football team, if he would have gone to the Jacksonville Jaguars, if he would have gone to the Chicago Bears? It's all about where do you go as a 
where do you go to an organization that's going to get the most out of your talent and put you in the best situation available? Just think about Andrew Luck. Andrew Luck came into the draft in 2012 as a generational prospect. A guy that was supposed to go down as one of the greatest quarterbacks who's ever played. As of right now, Andrew Luck was supposed to be projected in the year 2021 as either an MVP or a top two or three quarterback in the league. But when you get with a Jim Irsay organization, and when you get with the uh, GM who didn't put anything around him, didn't put any type of offensive line around him, didn't give him any type of wide receiver except for T.Y. Hilton, gave him a bum as a running back in Trent Richardson, and Andrew Luck got beat up after beat up after beat up. He's no longer playing football anymore. What would have been, What would? how nice would it have been if you had an organization such as, oh, I don't know, John Elway, Denver Broncos. Now, I know Elway has whipped many times on quarterback, but if you give him a quarterback with some talent, C.I.E., C. Peyton Manning, it'll work. Not saying that Andrew Luck was coming in with the same skill set or at the same level as Peyton Manning when he went to the Denver Broncos, but I'm just saying, I think that Andrew Luck would have had a much better chance to succeed if he was going to a decent franchise. Put him in Seattle. Put him with the Dolphins. Hell, put him with the Minnesota Vikings and see where he's at. I bet you one thing, I bet you he wouldn't be out of football. So, you know, history has shown if the Jets select Zach Wilson and the San Francisco 49ers select Trey Trey Lance, that Lance is going to have a better chance to succeed than Wilson in five years based on coaching and based on organization. Now, the new coach for the Jets, defensive acumen off the charts. I don't know what the offensive coordinator is like. I don't know what the quarterback coach is like. I do know what Kyle Shanahan is like. I do know the quarterbacks that he's helped out. I do know the success that he has with those guys. So if you're going to prognosticate the year 2026, and you have Zach Wilson, who's supposed to be a guy who has a whole lot of talent but needs to be nurtured, who needs to learn some things, who needs to grow into being a franchise quarterback, you're going to put him on the New York Jets. Meanwhile, same situation as far as long-term expectations are concerned. You give the San Francisco organization and Kyle Shanahan, Trey Lance, and allow him to still be the coach for another two or three years, regardless of records. I'm saying by 2026 in that situation, that Trey Lance would be the better prospect. So, in conclusion for this segment, hey man, just get these guys on your team. Let the quarterback coach, let the offensive coordinator do their thing. It ain't about where you're from. It's where you're at, as the great Rakim Alar said. Doesn't matter what college you went to. If you got talent, if you got ability, if you got humility, if you got intelligence, if you got dedication, if you got passion, if you got inner belief in yourself mixed in with the ability and talent to be a really good quarterback and you go to a right organization, don't matter where the fuck that you came from, you will be able to succeed. Nas, 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 Nas,
going. My pants poster sag. We going ultra. Yeah. We going ultra black. I got a toast to that. We don't fold the crack. We going. Occasion we rose to that. Fuck on postal. We going ultra black. Watching the global change. Hopping the coldest range. Hip boy on the beat. This shit poster slap. We going ultra black. We going. We going. Rhythm and blues, pop, rock, soul to jazz, till my toes attack. How I look being told, I'm not supposed to brag. Nobody fought, I tell the truth, I know it's facts. We ultra black, gray stone, skin tone, but multi that. Multiple colors, we coming on shades, mocha black. Except where I'm at and not fight me on it. Emotional stares like I might be wanted. Pitch black like... Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things getting down and being down and being all around today in the world of sports. Man, NBA news, final stretch of the regular season. People have been complaining. Defense stinks. Injuries. Load management. Now, the injury's terrible. Load management. Never liked all of those things. But um, I guess you could say probably the most entertaining player in the season, during the season so far, Without question, now moving himself into MVP consideration, Stephen Curry. This guy, man, this guy is unflipping believable. Against Philadelphia on Monday, did you see this game? 49 points, that MVP chance from the Philly fans. That step back three that he made from about 27 feet with a minute 10 left in the um, and the Warriors up 101-95. Unbelievable. And he's hitting like three or four shots a game like that, man. It's just unreal. So I'm thinking now, how dangerous could the Golden State Warriors be if they make the playoffs? For namely, could Stephen Curry go ahead and win a round or two in the playoffs basically all by himself? We speak about what's the definition of the MVP. What makes up the MVP? People have been talking about Nikola Jokic. People have been talking about Joel Embiid. Until he got injured, people were talking about LeBron James. I'm telling you, for me... The definition of the MVP is how would your team look if that player was no longer on the court? Doesn't have to be dealing with um, how many points you score or who's the best player in the game. We've had this discussion all the time. LeBron James should have been winning eight or nine or ten championships. No, not really, because LeBron James might have been the best player in the NBA, but LeBron James at a time or two during his uh, career, especially after leaving the Miami Heat, he took periods of time off in the regular season. The years that um, Giannis Antetokounmpo won the MVP, he won the MVP. Now, who was the best player in the game? LeBron James. But as far as the MVP is concerned, as far as what he did in the regular season is concerned, the effort and the output and the impact that he had on his team in the regular season, Giannis was the legitimate MVP. Oh, yeah, but when he got down to the playoffs, we saw the warts. We saw the uh, negativities. We saw the uh, defects in this game, this, that, and the other. Okay, that's true. And LeBron roared through in the bubble and did his thing and won the MVP. Okay, that's fine. Number one, he had Anthony Davis. Giannis doesn't have Anthony Davis. Number two, um, again, LeBron took time off. LeBron coasts through some periods of the regular season. And because of that, I'm sorry. My MVP, my definition of the MVP, it's not just, well, he's the best player in the game. Well, if that's the case, then we shouldn't even, why even even go through the regular season? 
We all know that for years, I'm on top, on top of years, LeBron James was the best player in the game. So regardless of what he did in the, in the regular season, we should just go, go ahead and give him the MVP, right? Because since he's the best player in the game, why does he need to go ahead and perform all out during the regular season? Now, to me, it's a, number one, it's a regular season award. And number two, what type of impact do you have on your team? And that doesn't automatically mean that you have to be the player that's on the team that's going to have 60 wins or 62 wins or 58 wins or hold the number one seed. It's a situation of how valuable are you? I mean, hell, a guy could be a player on the team to where when he's on the court, the team is 42 and 40. When he's off the court, if he wasn't playing for him, the team would be 18 and 60 or, or 58 or whatever it is. You know, so it's all about who do you have around you? What are you doing? And for many years, especially when Steph was winning back-to-back MVPs, one of them being unanimous, it was always, well, shit, look at the team that he's on. He's playing with Clay Thompson. He's playing with Andre Iguodala. He's playing with Sean Livingston. He's playing with Draymond Green. He's playing with Kevin Durant. He's playing with all these guys. He doesn't have the responsibilities. I mean, hell, MVP, he's not even the best player on his team. That's Kevin Durant. So blah, blah, blah. So this season, he's come back with a vengeance, especially this month, especially in the month of April. I mean, we're, we're speaking about a guy here who has scored 40 or more points this month, five times, 30 or more points, 11 straight times. He's become the definition, in my opinion, of what a most valuable player is. Why? Because when the Warriors and Stephen Curry are on the court together, the Warriors average 115 points per 109 garbage time possessions. When Stephen Curry is not on the court, that average falters to 100 points over 109 garbage uh, minutes or possessions. Which is, by the way, the worst by a country mile. With Curry in the lineup, they're eighth in terms of points per possession. Without them, they're dead last. And it's not even close. That includes the Minnesota Timberwolves. That includes the Houston Rockets. That includes the Oklahoma City Thunder. Steph Curry is the most valuable player in the game. Now, is he going to win the MVP? No. Am I going to be shouting and screaming and yelling bloody murder? No. Because Nikola Jokic has been absolutely unbelievable also. And unfortunately, sorry, Brian Windhorst, Joel Embiid had been played in enough games to overtake a guy in Nikola Jokic who had barely missed any time, if any, this season. But, uh, yeah. I, I think this is a situation. Number one, the Warriors play a really, really entertaining brand of basketball. Number one, very easy on the eyes to watch. Cutting, moving, ball movement. Draymond Green, who is not the scorer that he is as far as putting the ball in the basketball on the offensive end. He facilitates very well. His knowledge of the game is uh, unsurpassed. And uh, he still plays some pretty good defense, even though he's not the Draymond Green of old in terms of being able to um, defend the players that he once did, but uh, yeah, you you let Steph Curry get hot. You let Steph Curry get cooking in a, say for instance, in a seven-game series where it's 2-2, and we're speaking about a situation where where Curry goes off, yeah, this guy can win a uh, playoff game by himself, without question. Look at the teammates that he's playing with. James Wiseman, who's out for the year right now, James Wiseman, Andrew Wiggins, Kelly Oubre Jr., Justin Poole, or Jordan Poole, 
Kent Bazemore, for heaven flipping sakes. Eric Pascal. And again, Draymond Green has lost a step from his prime. You know what he's, he's shooting 41%, 31% from the three-point line? The man hasn't scored 20 points so far this season. He has a season high of only 18 points. Now, again, he's doing other things to help the team win. But this is not the Draymond Green who was the heart and soul, along with being one of the better, most important players for the Warriors during the championship run. This is not, who, who else on that team is going to help Steph with the scoring load? Andrew Wiggins? There's times, man, where Andrew Wiggins goes like three or four possessions where you just say, damn, man, that guy. Andrew Wiggins, man, he's he's good. I mean, he's damn good. And then there's other times where like, damn, Andrew Wiggins sucks. Basically, inconsistency. But who else on that team is going to help with uh, the scoring load? For Stephen Curry, especially when we get in the playoffs. But if he gets hot and if he gets going, he is so uh, dynamic as an offensive threat that uh, you're going to have to take account for him every single possession, which can open up more opportunities for an Andrew Wiggins or a Kelly Oubre Jr. who can go short stints during a game or even during a series where they can become a legitimate second best player on a team that's fighting in the playoffs in the first round. Now, a completely healthy Los Angeles Lakers, I don't think the Golden State Warriors have a chance. If Paul George continues to perform in the playoffs like he's done in the regular season with the Lakers against the, uh, I mean, with the Clippers going up against the Warriors, the Warriors don't have a chance. But you take a look at someone like the Phoenix Suns. You take a look at someone like the injured Denver Nuggets. Steph gets cooking, Steph gets hot, and it opens up everything around him, and folks start getting on a roll. Who knows, man? Who knows with that? Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Speaking of Los Angeles, and speaking of the Los Angeles Lakers, when will Anthony Davis and LeBron James return? When? When, oh, when? Well, Davis has been out since, as you know, February 14th with a calf strain and tendonitis in his right leg. James has been out since March 20th when he suffered a high ankle sprain against the Atlanta Hawks. When are those guys coming back now? Because according to a story from ESPN, Dave McMenamin, Anthony Davis is supposed to be returning on the court this week. I'm recording this on a uh, Tuesday night, but he's supposed to be coming back to the court possibly against the uh, Dallas Mavericks on Thursday. So Lakers head coach, coach Frank Vogel said that uh, Davis is, a, is days away from making his return. His statement was that, uh, you know, he's got to be able to get some good work on the court. He's been able to get some good work on the court after L.A.'s morning meeting and will build up over the next two days going into the Lakers' next game, as I mentioned, be four Thursday on the road against the Dallas Mavericks. In fact, they have two consecutive games against the Mavericks at the, uh, at da- on Dallas's home court. So the last hurdle, according to Vogel, is basically just getting his win back for uh, AD. But even when he comes back, again, we keep thinking about, well, once AD and uh, LeBron return, everything will be rip-roaring, ready to go, and they'll be able to pick up where they left off. Well, hold on for a second, man. When you're speaking about two guys, even as accomplished as Anthony Davis and LeBron James, and even that the what the dynamic uh, genetic freak is, which is 
LeBron James. I mean, he's not going to go from zero to 60 in, in, a, in a quarter and a half or even a week and a half. Davis is going to be restricted to 15, somewhere around 15 minutes a game, his first two games back into the lineup. Again, slowly working his way back to uh, where he was. Hopefully we get it by when? Somewhere around the second round, possibly? I can't imagine that the 15 games that Davis is going to play or 13 games that Davis is going to play is going to get him ready to get back to his dominant self once the playoffs start in Memorial on Memorial Day weekend um, in May. Don't think that's going to happen. So for me, I expect, if anybody expected to see Anthony Davis, you know, um, doing his thing, it's going to be, for me, sometime in mid-June. Do the Lakers have that amount of, amount of time? Are they... Lakers going to be able to hold up. And an update on LeBron here on Wendell's World and Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. Vogel said before LA's game against Utah on Monday night that LeBron James has progressed to quote-unquote light work on the court. And he still believed to be weeks away from getting back into uh, game action. And again, he's got to, once again, get back to where he was. It's going to take some time. Even someone like LeBron James. So I don't know what the Lakers, man. The, the, their record has been since uh, Davis's entry, and this is starting on the week of April 19th. So far, they've been uh, 14 and 15, and seven and eight since both LeBron and AD were uh, injured and then missed games. So currently, the record is 35 and 23, fifth place in the Western Conference. They're two and a half games behind Denver, four and a half games behind the Clippers, two games ahead of the Portland Trailblazers, four games ahead of Dallas. So I think they're pretty much, if you take a look at where they're sitting right now, I think they're pretty much in that 4 5 area right there, which means that there's a possible possibility that they could be playing the Denver Nuggets in the first round of the playoffs, which. If LeBron and AD aren't going to be at least 70 to 75%, I would say if Jamal Murray was playing that the uh, Nuggets should be qualified as the favorites if the uh, percentage for LeBron and AD aren't going to be any higher than what I just mentioned before, 70 to 75%. But with Jamal Murray being out, I mean, how much can Jokic carry them in the postseason? Even with a hobbled, even with a less than 60%. LeBron and Anthony Davis. How much could the Denver Nuggets hold out? How much could the Denver Nuggets be competitive over a seven-game series against the squad known as the Los Angeles Lakers? So if you take a look at the remaining schedule for LA, they got Utah. They played Utah on Monday night, then two games at Dallas, then at Orlando, at Washington, back home to Sacramento, Toronto, Denver, at Los Angeles, as far as the Clippers are concerned, which is a neutral site. I mean, they both play on the same floor. Then up to Portland, then back home to Phoenix. They host the Knicks, Houston, then end the season on the road, two games at Indiana and at New Orleans. So, depending what you say, man, what do you say with this Laker fan stuff? Where do you go? What are you looking at? Glass half empty, glass half full, panic, not panic, not concerned. Again, everybody is just under, I shouldn't say everybody. A lot of people, especially Laker fans, are under the assumption that, hey, no big deal. Once LeBron and AD come back, we'll be able to pick right off, pick right up where we left off. Are you sure about that? Well, the glass half half empty approach is, 
Look, man, LeBron and AD, they've missed too many games to get themselves at the level they need to be at for a long playoff push. We don't know, but 15 games left exactly when is LeBron going to be coming back. And he's going to be able to reach that level of competence, reach that level of domination, reach that level of impact once the playoffs start at the fourth seed. If they do, or at five seed, if they do win that four or five matchup against the Denver Nuggets, they didn't have to go and play the Utah Jazz. Are they going to have enough? Would it be better for them to maybe slip down to where they can bid in the, the bracket where the Phoenix Suns are? If you take a look at the Phoenix Suns and their lack of experience, many people are pointing to them in terms of that there's going to be an upset in the Western Conference or there's going to be an upset in the NBA playoff that is going to happen with the number two seeded, currently number two seeded Phoenix Suns. Whoever they play, especially if we're speaking about Dallas, especially if we're speaking about someone like a San Antonio with the coaching experience that Greg Popovich, Popovich presents as a five-time NBA champ and one of the best coaches in NBA history. So if you're the Lakers, do you even contemplate going ahead and saying, you know what, if we move down to the six or seven, eh, we might have to be in the play-in game, but eh, we got LeBron, we got AD. It's so many different avenues. There's so many other ways to get there. But again, it's all going to be dependent. It's all going to be incumbent upon LeBron and Anthony Davis getting to where they can be the Batman and Robin of that team, which they need to be if you're looking to uh, compete against some of the uh, better teams in the Western Conference. And as of right now, I'm not uh, completely sure that's going to happen. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. That's one scenario that we're looking at in terms of the, you know, what's, what's going to be the situation. Glass half empty. Missed too many games because of injury. Not going to have enough time to recover, get back to where they can lead a team to a championship. The other scenario in terms of the glass being full, Mr. Positive, look things on the bright side. If I went down for Christmas and saw shit under my tree, I would say, hip, 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 hooray. I must have gotten myself done a pony. If you're going to have that outlook on things concerning LeBron and Anthony Davis, it's, hey, look, man, those injuries to those two, that's the best thing that could have happened to them. You know why? Because after an extremely short offseason, LeBron was coming out there talking about he wants to, you know, go ahead and play the entire 72 or at least the high majority of 72. We've known the career of Anthony Davis where he's always had these not major injuries, but these like annoying injuries, a hamstring here, a slight pull there, a pinky injury, a hand injury, something this, that, and the other. Not anything debilitating or long-term or anything like that, but it's always just been something. So you were going to be asking Anthony Davis, basically 10 minutes after the finals were over, to get back and start playing it again and playing at the level that he was playing at? Well, of course, if you know the history of Anthony Davis, that eventually he was going to break down. So what the two main components, the two main superstars, the foundation pieces for the Los Angeles Lakers to win an NBA championship, what they're doing right now is this is their offseason. This is what they're doing to get themselves ready right now to get ready for the playoffs. It to be refreshed. It to be ready mentally, physically ready to go. We all know about the recovery powers of LeBron James. We all know about the mind that LeBron James has for the game of basketball to where, okay, he might not be 100%. 
He might not be 80 to 85%, but still, guess what? A 65, 68.78463175 LeBron James is still better than anybody that you got out here. He can make Dennis Schroeder better. He can make Andre Drummond better. He can make KCP better. He can do all those type of things. So if LeBron is going to be at 65%, that's going to be good enough for us to get past the Utah Jazz team, which are you really going to trust Donovan Mitchell, who's injured also, who twisted his ankle, and we don't know what the status of his injury is going to be long-term in terms of taking away some of his explosiveness for the playoffs. We don't know what's going to be happening with the Phoenix Suns and their inexperience. Jamal Murray already out, as I mentioned before, against the uh, for the uh, Denver Nuggets. So, you know, the, the Clippers, we've all seen this story before. We've already seen this program before in terms of Paul George's concern. Are you ready to trust Paul George in the playoffs after last uh, season's meltdown? So, you know, Patrick Beverly has been injured. Kawhi has taken some uh, time off. So, you know, it's not just the Lakers who are battling um, issues where their key players aren't, you know, motoring down the stretch at uh, full capacity. So that's the glass half full deal with the Los Angeles Lakers. Where do I stand? I'm going with the glass half empty. Unless LeBron gets, LeBron gets back and gets back strong in AD, I don't think that they're going to get a chance. I don't think they're going to beat Utah. And I wouldn't think they're going to beat um, Phoenix either. But, you know, again, take a look at the Western Conference. The best one-two punches. And you've got some good ones, man. You've got Kawhi and Paul George. You've got Donovan Mitchell and Gobert. You've got Chris Paul and Devin Booker. You've got Luka and Porzingis. You've got Nikola Jokic and Michael uh, Porter Jr. You've got Damian Lillard and C.J. McCollum. You've got John Morant and Jaron Jackson. All of those duos, all of those teams, Batmans and Robins, are great. But 75% LeBron and AD supersedes all of them. So, interesting, moving down the stretch. Glass half full with the Lakers. Glass half empty with their situation. Coming down to the playoffs. Starting the playoffs in a little bit more than a month. It's going to be wild. It is truly going to be wild. And Stephen Curry, can he pull the ridiculous, the sublime, the incredible, the greatest shooter that this game has ever known. Can he continue this hot streak to the playoffs and then continue it? I don't see why not. And if that's the, if that's going to be the case, man, if you're one of these higher seeds, you better look out. You better not shout. You better not cry because I'm telling you why. Stephen Curry is coming to town. Oh, shit, in that case, you better pout. You better shout. You better cry because I'm telling you why Stephen Curry is coming to town. Shoot the three, Steph.
Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Running on a half a tank. No, I would say a quarter tank left. In terms of talking about what's happening in the world of sports. Got to wake up and let me see here. Oh, how about that? About four hours and 45 minutes for that 65-mile drive out to the valley. So I can go go ahead and substitute a physical education class, which in the days of COVID and the fact that half the kids are going to be at home and the other half are going to be sitting around in the gym, kicking back, doing nothing, I'm going to have a very interesting time, I believe, trying to stay awake. At least I can go ahead and do my walking. I'm trying to do like, I don't know, anywhere between 5,000 to like 9,000 steps a day, depending upon what my schedule is and such, before I advance to getting back in the gym, putting some muscle on these uh, bones and taking some of this fat off other places of my body. But as of right now, I'm doing a lot of walking, doing some uh, doing some of that, so haven't been out there in the last couple of days. Normally, I just walk around the neighborhood. I try to get in about uh, three miles. Um, walk up a little bit of a hill. You know, old man stuff. So, um, don't know if I'm going to be able to. I don't know when. Maybe I'll just walk around the gym. They're good, they're good kids. They're not going to give me any problems. So, I'll just see what I can do about walking around the gym and getting as many steps as I can. Try to do 60 minutes. Try to do three miles. Anywhere between 6,000 9,000 steps. We'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Let me end with the NBA talking about, you know what, the surprise team. I talked about Stephen Curry. talked about the Golden State Warriors. talked about the, the uh, Los Angeles Lakers. Man, in the Eastern Conference, what about the New York Knicks? What about the flipping New York Knicks? They won seven games in a row, the longest active unbeaten streak. The current record now sits, stands, pledges, 32-27, fifth place in the Eastern Conference, half game behind the Atlanta Hawks for the uh, fourth place. What is going on here, man? What is happening with the New York Knicks? Tom Thibodeau, man, give it up for him. I don't know how long he's going to last with the coach, at being the coach with the New York Knicks, but man, right there with Steve Nash, Monty Williams, and Quinn Snyder, can we say that uh, he deserves some serious recognition, some true recognition of Coach of the Year honors? Because uh, he's been awesome, man. He's been fantastic. He's been a turnaround. I knew everybody knows, anybody who follows the NBA, anybody who has an inkling of Tom Thibodeau in terms of the coach is concerned, the head coach is concerned, you, you knew one thing. You knew that the starters were going to play over 40 minutes. You knew the starters were going to get a lot of minutes. And number two, you knew that the Knicks weren't going to be taking any days off and they were going to be trying on, they're going to be trying hard on defense. I don't know exactly how great they would be on defense when you had the personnel around them, but we knew that they were going to play hard. You knew that they were going to be committed to the defensive end and they, you don't care on that Knicks team who the hell you are. If you don't play defense for Tom Thibodeau, you don't play period. And that would be for anybody on that team. If you had a dream team and you had Tom Thibodeau as the coach and you had Stephen Curry, you had LeBron James, you had uh, Joel Embiid, Giannis, and name other six or seven best NBA players in the world, if you weren't playing defense, he would have no problem sitting your ass out and chewing you out about not playing defense and missing assignments as you were coming off the court. Thibodeau was demanding. So we knew with a young team like the Knicks, that uh, for the short term, that he was going to uh, get them to play hard 
He was going to get them to play defense. Now, moving down the line, what's going to be Tom Thibodeau in terms of the situation with the New York Knicks? Because he does, he does tend to uh, wear out his welcome, has that Scott Skiles disease in terms of, yeah, you'll get a good effort, and you'll get good play, and you'll get good results for a few years, maybe with the exception of being Minnesota. But, you know, like Skiles, when he was the coach in Orlando, when he was the coach in Chicago, I mean, ultimately, his demanding, tough style basically just wears people out, both physically and mentally. And the same can be applied to uh, Thibodeau. He did it with uh, Chicago in terms of, but, you know, Gar, her, uh, you know, Paxson and Gar Forbin had a little bit to do with that also, but uh, also didn't succeed very well in Minnesota. So, We'll see what happens here moving long-term with the New York Knicks and how he develops uh, Kevin Knox, if they're not going to trade him, how he develops a Emmanuel Quigley, how he develops an R.J. Barrett, most importantly. But uh, as of right now, he's got them in fifth place, and they're playing really good basketball. And if you remember, January of 2019, not that long ago, for about 72 to 96 hours, the New York Knicks were the absolute jokes of the NBA. Remember that time? That's when they traded the number six pick of the draft or their number six pick in the draft, Christoph Porzingis, the guy that was supposed to be the person that was going to turn the franchise around, the person, the player that was going to be the best player since Patrick Ewing, the player that was supposed to uh, make the Knicks relevant again. Remember that? That was supposed to be Phil Jackson's only uh, move worth a damn in his tenure as the president of basketball operations for the Knicks, his drafting of Christoph Porzingis. Remember that? And then because Porzingis was talking about, well, you know, I don't know if I'm going to be signing the extension, and as of right now, I don't think I'll be signing the extension. So the Knicks panicked, and they went ahead and traded him. And not only did they trade him to the Dallas Mavericks, or not only did they trade him based on that rumor whatever that was in terms of, well, he wasn't going to be re-signing with us anyway, so we just might might as well go ahead and trade him and get something in return. Well, what you got in return when you traded him, speaking of Porzingis, when the Knicks traded Porzingis along with Tim Hardaway Jr. and Courtney Lee and Trey Burke to the Dallas Mavericks, you got back Dennis Smith Jr., the expiring contract of DeAndre Jordan and West Matthews, West, uh, Matthews and a couple of future first-round picks. That's it. That's it. <laughs> and they were the joke. And they were the joke of the league, not only because of the return that they got, but the fact that, A, basically, you gave away your franchise cornerstone because he said that he wasn't happy, he wasn't going to resign. So the Knicks were a complete and utter joke, and they've been a complete and utter joke uh, for a while. They missed the playoffs for, the, for seven straight years. And how much better of the league, how much better at the NBA when the Knicks are relevant. It hasn't been like that for a while. Not since I saw Mike Woodson with their head coach and had Carmelo Anthony doing their deal. But for the most part, the Knicks haven't been relevant since the Patrick Ewing days in terms of a team that consistently were strong playoff performers or strong, viable championship contenders. So Madison Square Garden has been very uh, tame for the most part. But now, we've got something here. My question, though, for being a New York Knicks fan, is you know the background of Thibodeau. You know 
this roster, the talent that you have on this roster. This was supposed to be a season where the Knicks were going to be bad enough to get themselves in the position to have a Zion redemption draft. Remember when the Knicks were horrible and everybody was like, ooh, Zion, Zion, Zion. But in the end, you guys missed it by a couple of picks and you went ahead and drafted R.J. Barrett. And everybody was talking about how awesome it would have been to have Zion Williamson. And then you could have made the trade for Anthony Davis. And again, that would have brought the Knicks back. Now, not just the relevance, but years and years of buying for championships. If you played your cards right and you built the team correctly around those two. You didn't get Anthony Davis because he went to L.A. You didn't get Zion because you didn't win the lottery. So this was supposed to be the year where it was like, look, we're not going to be very good. We don't have a lot of talent. We're off of signing like 14 power forwards, all 6'9", and playing the same position. So what we're going to do is we're going to stink out loud. But the caveat to that is we're going to be in a position to finish somewhere as far as the draft order is concerned, somewhere in the top five or six. And if we do that, this is a very strong, the 2021 NBA draft, this is a very top-heavy draft class. If you're speaking about the four or five major players that potentially have the talent to turn a franchise around. If you're speaking about Kate Cunningham of Oklahoma State, if you're speaking about Evan Mobley of USC, if you're speaking about Jonathan Kuminga and Jalen Green of the G League, and if you're thinking about Jalen Scruggs of the of, of Gonzaga, those are the five players right there that are considered to be franchise-type potential-type players. If the Knicks can somehow tank, lose, whatever you want to call it, to get in that position and draft one of those players, at least there's hope. At least there's something. At least there's reason to be optimistic. But the way the Knicks are playing right now, that's not going to be a situation where they're going to be entertaining in terms of drafting that high in the lottery because they're going to be in the playoffs. And while the initial reaction is, oh, this is going to be awesome, this is going to be great, Madison Square Garden, no matter how many people they're going to be able to let into the building, is going to be, you know, jumping and electric and all those things again because the Knicks are going to be in the playoffs. And, ooh, wouldn't it be sweet, a second-round matchup against the uh, Brooklyn Nets? Wouldn't that be something? And we can dream and we can take a look and we can prognosticate and we can go ahead and talk about that. But the Knicks aren't good enough to win themselves an NBA championship. The Knicks aren't good enough to win an Eastern Conference uh, championship. Now, depending upon the injury situation with the Brooklyn Nets, let's just take them out of the, the equation. Are the Knicks good enough to beat Boston? Are the Knicks good enough to beat Milwaukee? Are the Knicks good enough to beat the Philadelphia 76ers? So, again, this is awesome. This is great. This is wonderful. Julius Randle is playing out of his mind. But when the season is over and you've lost in five rounds in the first round of the NBA playoffs, what are we looking at here? Where are we going here? What are we thinking here? Now, maybe you could say, hey, you know what? For a bunch of guys who've never made the playoffs, the fact that they've gotten into the playoffs is something that they can use to become a better basketball team. So in that situation, there's no guarantee that the Knicks, even if they bottomed out, would be in a position to draft a Cunningham or to draft a Mobley or draft one of those guys. So you might as well bank on the experience that you'll get by going into the playoffs and experiencing that than wasting a year 
uh, basically seeing how many games that they could lose. Okay, fine, understood, but boy, I don't know if we're going to be looking back in five or six years, the Knicks missed an opportunity to uh, get themselves a Cade Cunningham who is going to be an all-star, maybe miss out on the opportunity to get themselves a Jalen Green who's going to be averaging 28, 29 points a game, or get themselves a Jonathan Kuminga who could be one of the better two-way players in the game. And while the Knicks are still going to be sitting there and relying on, hopefully, R.J. Barrett, uh, Obi Toppin, and Frank Nilakita. Who knows? Who knows, man? Julius Randle. Got to give some props. Got to give special dedication to him. Might be the leader for the most improved player, wouldn't you say? Man's playing almost every single game. Played in 57 out of 58. He's averaging 24 points, 10.5 rebounds, 6 assists. With a first-time All-Star shooting 40% from the three-point line after being a career 29% three-point shooter. If he was playing baseball back in the late 90s, we'd be accusing him of using PEDs for the jump in percentage and three-point uh, accuracy. Playing, playing great. I think it was a situation, just like Steph Curry, to double back on him, I think the long layoff did wonders for him. I think the fact that he had... You know, the opportunity not to play basketball and work on his craft. Randall said multiple times, look, I used that time off in between COVID and the, the cancellation of the season and um, not playing when, you know, the bubble and this, that, the other. I concentrated, I focused on my jump shot. And we see the fruits of his labor right now, the way he's playing, the way he's shooting. He's become an inside-out guy. And, and just the all-around player. With the Lakers, the man never, ne- the man never, Met a shot he didn't take. All right? I mean, this guy made Kevin McHale in his prime look like Ben Simmons in terms of his passing the basketball. But he had absolutely no outside shot at all. Very little mid-range game. And when he was with the Lakers and even a little bit with the Pelicans, he just put his head down and tried to get to the rim. Sometimes it was successful. Sometimes it wasn't. But now he's really developed an all-around game with the Knicks. And it's starting to show. And I think that he's young enough, not the fact that I think he's going to be making any all-NBA teams, but this is a guy who, especially in the Eastern Conference at the position that he's playing, I wouldn't be surprised if he continues to develop to develop and become a perennial all-star. Not first or second or third NBA team, or maybe every blue moon if he really maxes out to get himself a third-team all-NBA. But um, a guy who's going to be a perennial all-star, and if you could just get one more superstar with this guy. The Knicks could really be something. Now, the Knicks, for as long as I can remember, has never been a free agent destination, which is a shocker because you speak about the NBA and you speak about the big markets and you speak about the Lakers and you speak about the opportunities and you speak about players building their brand. You speak about the big markets where those players could build their brands and that's the reason why everybody wants to go to Los Angeles and that's why everybody... Want to go to a big city? Shit. Really? Because the Knicks haven't... When, when was the last time the Knicks got a free agent of any type of impact, of any type of consequence? Now you got someone maybe that can attract a big-time free agent to go. The city that never sleeps is going to be there. But if you're going to put your team... If you're going to put your career... If you're a guy who can win a championship, if you're a guy that's good enough to win a championship, if you're of an Anthony Davis quality, if you're of a LeBron James quality, if you're a in his prime Dwayne Wade type of uh, of uh, 
prospect in terms of free agency is concerned. A guy who can win you a championship as long as you put someone comparable, as long as you put someone that will fit to help you reach that goal. New York was never that destination because of management and because of the team that they had on the field or on the court. They weren't going to be dealing with that stuff. Now, in Julius Randle, now in maybe Emmanuel Quigley, Derrick Rose has been playing pretty good. R.J. Barry, I think, on a very good team could be that number three option. I think now the Knicks are building something to where a big-time free agent might say, hey, you know what? The Knicks are a true destination. Now, Giannis is off the table. There really isn't a free agent of impact in the recent future that could be considering the um, that could be considering the New York Knicks, man. But you never know. We don't know what superstar. We don't know what impact player might all of a sudden turn a James, you know, do a James Harden or do an Anthony Davis and say, yeah, you know what? I don't want to. I don't want to be here anymore. I think I want to be traded. And here are my list of teams. So the Knicks at least in that situation, has put themselves into a pretty good uh, opportunity to uh, build something sustainable and something that's uh, substantive. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Let me end with this. Let me end with this. Remember, you follow basketball, right? You like basketball, this, that, and the other. I follow the NBA, love the NBA. You remember a guy named Tyler Hero? <laughs> You remember the artist formerly known as Tyler Hero? That guy that was going to come in and be the next superstar and be that guy, be that it guy, the performance he put in down in Orlando in the bubble. You remember that guy? We hasn't, he hasn't been around this season too much. Hardly ever. And now we hear reports that the Miami Heat have been concerned for months about Tyler Hero. Because after scoring double digits for 10 consecutive games to start the month of April, Hero has gone four straight games without hitting that mark. Single figures, single figures in the Heat's last four games. Hero's averaging only seven points and he's shooting 29% from the field. In his last six games, plus minus, he's a minus 70. That leads the league, folks. That leads the league, good young man. Mm, mm, mm. Last season, hey man, I mean, you know, came in, 13th player picked out of Kentucky, shocked everybody because Calipari didn't use him the way that uh, Spolstra used him, didn't get, give him the opportunity to shine like the Miami Heat and Spolstra did. So last season, he was named to the All-NBA rookie second team after averaging 13 and a half points, four rebounds, two assists per game. Ranked fourth among rookies, shooting almost 39% from the three-point line during the regular season. And then in the playoffs, that's where it all started happening. That's where Hero Mania started in the postseason. That's when he upped his numbers to 16 points, five rebounds, three and a half assists, shooting 37% beyond the uh, three-point line over 21 games. He had that 30-plus game off the bench against the Boston Celtics. Um, people were up there talking about hero this and hero that. They had, the Miami Heat scouts were saying that he was a better pro prospect than Booker, uh, than Devin Booker. Remember that? What happened to that guy? Where is that guy? Let me ask you something. If Phoenix offered Devin Booker for Tyler Hero as a centerpiece of the trade this season, 
with Miami deal? <laughs> I mean, we're talking about less than eight months ago. Yeah, Tyler Hero is going to be a better player in the NBA possibly than Devin Booker. Eight months later, half Phoenix call up Miami and offer Devin Booker for Tyler Hero. And let's see how quickly the Miami Heat say, hell fucking yeah. Interesting. Interesting. So what the hell happened? What the hell happened to Tyler Hero? Well, I was listening to a recent episode of Inside the Paint. It's a pretty good pro- podcast. It's with uh, Miami beat writer Ethan Schlolnick uh, and Ira uh, Winderman. And they were talking about, you know, what's going on with Tyler Hero? What's happening with Tyler Hero? And again, why are the Heat, why are the Heat been so concerned about, you know, Hero and his growing stardom and his on-the-court struggles? And basically, Tyler Hero, maturity-wise, not getting there in terms of, you know what, all of a sudden, he let what happened to him in the bubble, the success into the bu- in the bubble, all of a sudden now, he's trying to turn that into something lucrative. He's trying to turn that in terms of put the spotlight on me. He's trying to do that into, you know, I want to be a celebrity, I want to be this, I want to be that, other than a much better basketball player than he is. And from the audio, as I was listening to, we you know, uh, Winderman spelled it out. He said, Tyler Hero chose to become a celebrity. He chose to become something outside the game. And you know what? He's making money, so that's his right. You know, he had his breakfast cereal, his Tyler Tuesdays, his Chipotle bowl. And that's all well and good. But Winderman was talking about, hey, man, you know, when you are getting all this extra shit and you really haven't done anything, why, you up there thinking that, you know, your shit don't stink because you had a pretty good series against the Boston Celtics? What the fuck did you do in the finals against the L.A. Lakers? What about that? So, you know, other players are starting to look at him saying, hey, man, you know, you really haven't done anything. Don't know if it's jealousy, don't know if it's anger, don't know what the emotion is. But basically, they're looking at this guy saying, man, you've got all this shit coming your way, and what have you done? You're getting all these accolades, what have you done? What, based off of one good series, one really good series, in the playoffs against the Boston Celtics in front of no fans on a neutral court? So, what's going on with Tyler Hero, man? I think basically it's a shortened off season. It didn't help. I don't think it helped him, his confidence, when all of them, you're the it guy, you're the next superstar, you're all these things, everyone's gushing over you, talking about how great you are, and then all of a sudden, you're being mentioned, you're being talked about as far as trade rumors are concerned, the situation with Bradley Beal, the situation with James Harden, situation with Kyle Lowry, all of a sudden now, your name starts getting thrown out there, even though, you know, it might be a situation where, yeah, the name is thrown out there in terms of, yeah, we want James Harden, but we want Tyler Hero. And the Heat are like, yeah, no thanks. Your name is still being thrown out there. And as I've always mentioned before, Pat Riley and the Miami Heat, they're not in the business of stroking your ego. They're not going to go to Tyler Hero and say, oh, you know what, Tyler, don't worry about it. We really like you. You're the greatest. It was just this, that, and the other. They're going to be like, yeah, you know what? We thought about trading you, but we didn't. So, you know, put on your pads, get ready for practice. See ya. Yeah, exactly. Put on your pads and get ready for practice. Yes, put on your pads for a basketball practice. Because with the Miami Heat, they practice hard enough to where people have to be wearing pads for some drills, for some practices. So that's the Miami Heat. The Miami Heat ain't about kissing your ass. The Miami Heat isn't about trying to stroke your ego. The Miami Heat isn't worried about your feelings or your self-confidence or how good you feel about yourself. The Miami Heat are about winning basketball games and doing it the right way, doing it the Pat Riley way. 
So toughen up, Buttercup. Welcome to the real life. Welcome to the adult world. Welcome to the NBA. You were mentioned in trade offers. Get over it. We'll see you in practice. Do your thing. That might work for some people, but, you know, Tyler Hero again. How old is this kid? 21, 22 years old? The guy who was, uh, you know, boasting and bragging a little bit about getting this Instagram model and all this kind of stuff. This guy who came in, you know, shit don't stink, you know, this, that, and the other. Now you face a little bit of, a little bit of adversity. We'll see. And I think all of the things came down on him. And I also think that, guess what? The scattering poured on him. It got a little bit thicker. And if you're not going to be able to score, Tyler, why are we having you on the court? Because you definitely don't play any type of uh, decent defense. And so far, Kendrick Nunn has been a better basketball player. In fact, if you really think about it, Kendrick Nunn was a better basketball player than Tyler, Tyler Hero during the regular season before COVID went down. And then Tyler Hero emerged. Kendrick Nunn um, tested positive for COVID and really never got back in the groove. But before that, Kendrick Nunn was the better basketball player than Tyler Hero. So that's the deal, man. Miami been dealing with a boatload of injuries. Jimmy Butler's been in and out of the lineup. Um, big win the other night against Brooklyn. Bam on Bayou has been solid. But, uh, you know, you're, you're people up there focusing on Tyler Hero in terms of giving him the goodies and treating him like a star. Tyler Hero is not the engine that makes that Miami Heat team run if they're going to be driving it to championship field. The driver is going to be Jimmy Butler. The engine is going to be Bam out of Bayou. Now, Tyler Hero might, you know, have the suspension and some pretty nice tires, but if the engine don't work, then guess what? You ain't going nowhere. If you have an engine that is humming and you don't have a driver, guess what? You ain't going nowhere. So Jimmy Butler, driver, Bam out of Bayou, engine. Which is to say, two most important components to drive that car down to championshipville does not include tyler hero so tyler needs to kind of get that and understand that he's an important part of the team but again when you're coming out when this report's coming out that the heat has been concerned about hero for months interesting now if they've been that concerned about hero then don't you think at the trade deadline they might have gone ahead and pulled the trigger on a Kyle Lowry, possibly, maybe, but uh, we'll see. We'll see going forward, rest of the season, and how how Tyler Hero does in the playoffs this season. All right, Whew. I am done. I am out of here. Mm. I want to thank you very much for listening to the podcast. I want to thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to get off my chest about the Derek Chauvin situation. Appreciate that. Feel a lot better. I want to thank you very much for allowing me to speak on Trey Lance. I want to thank you very much for giving me the permission to talk about Tyler Hero and the New York Knicks. I want to thank you very much. Give a special dedication for allowing me to try to entertain you with Stephen Curry and Los Angeles Lakers talk. I appreciate you. I appreciate you listening, and I appreciate you doing what you need to do to become a good person, to help out others. Love, peace, unity, harmony. That's all we need, man. That is all we need, along with some education, along with some common sense, along with some intelligence, along with some open-mindedness. We can get there. I ain't going to get there, but uh, I might not get there with you. But uh, your children will benefit from it, and their children will benefit from it. 
be unselfish. It's not about us. It's not about this generations. It's for the generations after us. So there we go, man. Be good. I will talk to y'all later. Music. <laughs>